Hey everyone, this is uh, Travis Burns. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at uh, San Antonio Military Medical Center, Chief of Sports Medicine, and uh, about to be a member of Ortho San Antonio. And you're listening to Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Awesome. That was great, Travis. I, you know, I, I did the last one and I, I kind of spiced it up and said pot of being at the end, but, uh, but yeah. <laughs> to each is. Um, you, you have more personality than I do. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. Hello and welcome back to the Orange Recovery Science Podcast. I'm Johnny Owens. I'm here to to host another hopefully epic podcast. Um, mostly again discussing blood flow restriction, rehabilitation, training, whatever we want to call it. Um, I've got I brought reinforcements today. So we do have Tori Gomez back working the wheels of steel. She just she just told us that everything we just recorded earlier did not sound great. So we're we're starting over. Good good catch, Tori. Um, <laughs> we also have Ben Babyface Weatherford back with us. <laughs> hey, what's going on? All right. This is, uh, I, I'll redo my joke from earlier. Of I'm trying to grow, grow some facial hair so I don't have to be uh, babyface anymore. It wasn't funny earlier, and it wasn't funny this time, but thank you. <laughs> we also have Kyle Kimbrell called us in from some random bar at 5.30 in the morning in L.A. Kyle, what's up? What's up? I'm just, you know, sitting here on my custom stool. Nice. And so, with my facial hair that's far superior to Ben or Zach's. Uh, we're, we're not going hey, to get into a beard debate. That's, that's for another podcast. <laughs> Kyle, I've been trying to figure out the best uh, nickname for you, and, and we're just going to go with Kyle Bitmoji Kimbrel because you're yeah, obsessed yeah. with Bitmojis. I am. Some of those Bitmojis just crack me up, and some of them get in my head, and I can't get them out of there. And, and <laughs> that's the best part. We have Zach, the enforcer, Uncle, calling in from the ATL. What's up, Zach? How's it going? How's it going? I'll come up with a better. I'll come up with a better um, nickname for you later. Um, like I said in the pre-recording, that didn't work. It was going to be Zach Vegeff Dunkle because you went down that Vegeff wormhole for a while, and I wasn't sure if we we're going to get you out of it. But um, but it seems like <laughs> yeah. it seems like you're coming along. So um, it seems to be pretty important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just okay. So <laughs> Ben, your your quick background. Go like a minute. <laughs> so I uh, am a PT, graduated here from from San Antonio, from Incarnate Word. I've had the opportunity to work with Johnny since the time I was an intern. And uh, when I was there interning with him, I didn't kill any of his patients. So he decided I was safe enough to bring along. And uh, we've been teaching this for almost three years now. Is that how long we've been doing this, Johnny? Yeah, yeah with you for three years, I think. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and so you were actually with me pre-intern as, as an annoying volunteer, um, pre-PT, yeah. I think. It's been, it's been annoying me a long time. But, but yep, you yeah. have not been able to get rid of me yet. Yeah, I'm working on it. Um, Kyle, your background, less than a minute, go. Yeah, less than a minute. So, originally from the Houston area in Texas and uh, got transplanted out this way and on the West Coast. 
to a place called Georgia Herb Physical Therapy. Uh, I've been here be 15 years in, in April, just private practice outpatient. And I got interested in BFR like 10 years ago. I read some random article in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning. And then I saw Johnny on Twitter and just Twitter stocked my way into uh, teaching courses for him essentially is, is basically what happened. But, but we had, what, what, what did we do? It was like three years ago. We had your very first public course in our, in our clinic out here, right, Johnny? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Out yeah. In, out like in, we had a guy from Switzerland. <laughs> yeah. Adric. Yeah. And uh, he just chimed yeah. in on our inner circle the other day. Um, so yeah. I still talk to Adric every now and then. Great, great dude. Um, yeah. So basically the same kind of story has been, you, you were stalking me. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Okay. That's the common theme here. Cool. Exact. Go. Yeah. So I'd say I took a different approach than the most. Um, had no desire to go to college when I was in high school. Decided to go in the Marine Corps. Um, uh, served as a reconnaissance Marine in the Marine Corps. Had the opportunity to go to scout sniper school. Deployed to Iraq in 2004. Um, basically, coming off the end of the tour was, uh, what am I going to do with my life type of moment? And uh, decided I'd always. Uh, wanted to do PT and I liked it. Just didn't think I was kind of smart enough to do it at the time. And so uh, I had about a year left on my contract coming back from Iraq. And um, from there, did everything I could to get ready to go to PT school or go to college. And so I went, uh, did undergrad at Penn State, uh, moved down to Atlanta to go to PT school and did an orthopedic residency with Emory as well. And uh, have since stayed in Atlanta um, and worked in and around the city. Nice, man. Yeah, it's cool. So you've got the coolest background than us, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Thanks for showing us all up, Zach. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, you're, you're Marine Sniper, PT. Um, I just talked to my buddy Dan Roan yesterday. We might see each other up in D.C. in a, in a few weeks. Um, PT, he was at the Center of the Intrepid with me. He's a Marine Sniper, too. So, man, I don't know what the connection, all that angst or whatever that, that you have yeah. brought into the clinical setting. but. It's good. So yeah. So watch your back if you if you do something. <laughs> we got we got Zach Dunkel. If you see that little red light on you. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, cool. So um, today's kind of overall theme is is a little bit of uh, the where we are at this point um, after doing this kind of publicly for years now. Um, just kind of looking at the sheer numbers and the research that's going on in the publications. Um, and, and a question we get, so we have, we have this private group. Um, it's only for certified providers that have, that have trained with us. And, you know, a lot of questions in there are, are cool clinical <laughs> questions and other things or case studies, but there's always this one, you know, how, how do I talk to my, my surgeons about starting BFR or, you know, my, my facility, you know, now we've moved into a lot of healthcare systems and, you know, what's the kind of best way to get this going. So we're, we're going to kind of touch on, on, on that stuff uh, quite a bit as well. But what one recurring kind of um, episode we're going to have here, and I, I don't know what you call it, but a little part of, in this podcast is where are you at, where you've been and where you're going for this group of us that are, are the kind of the core trainers doing it. And, and so the reason why, I got these knuckleheads on with me is because um, they go out and train um, healthcare systems, open courses, and and a lot of the teams probably more than I do. So it's crazy. Like my first year of really doing this, I, I told my wife, you know, you, you got to be upfront, and I and I told her 
I think this is going to be a lot of work and a lot of travel. And, and, and I think when I look back at it, I, I was traveling almost 50 weeks in, in that first year. It, it was insane, you know? And like some of it would be like, okay, land, go to Auburn, do Auburn, drive over to Ole Miss, you know, the next day, drive. And so like doing just, just crazy amounts of, of courses. And then I was like, man, I can't keep this up. And so that's Ben came on and then we just punished Ben the next year. <laughs> Poor <laughs> wife didn't see him at all. Just traveling nonstop. And, and now Kyle and Zach are, are moving into that. Zach, I think you're the, the freaking road warrior winner nowadays. It's pretty much gone. Nonstop. Yeah. So, so anyways, you guys have so much good insight from doing all these teachings. And then what happens is you do a course, you get to know everyone, everyone becomes our friend. And, um, then we, we kind of talk to them all the time and they give us, you know, I've got this clinical question or this problem or whatever. And so we get a ton of insight from just these thousands of providers that are doing it. That, that's the one thing we say too, like this, this is no way like a, a one day course that you're going to learn all this stuff and, and just understand it because the amount of questions, the amount of science, the amount of literature that's just coming out makes your head spin. So, you know, once you're kind of in our club, we, we like to support you either through our private group or sending out emails or always, you know, every, pretty much everyone has our cell or our email so we can help um, answer questions. So, so that's going to be the goal here. And at the end today, after we do our interview with Dr. Burns, um, we are going to have question and answers. we got a lot of good questions that came in from our last podcast. And so and we got some good questions that um, I, I think will also kind of help people. So where are you at? Where you been? Where are you going? I'm in San Antonio. I'm, I'm back home. I just got back from NorCal, San Francisco. We do an annual course at Kaiser Healthcare with my good buddy, Eric Robertson and his fellows up there. Um, this is our third year of doing it. And so that's always a blast. I did that over the weekend. I think we had 32 people um, there with Stanford Athletic Department there. Great to have those guys. They, they've been uh, they did have a certified provider from the Texans and doing it, but, but now we're getting more of their department on board. So uh, that's where I just came from. <laughs> so the first year, guys, um, when I did San Francisco out there with, with Eric, I, I took my family because they, they hadn't ever been to San Francisco. My daughters, you know, young daughters, they were like six and eight. And so we go out there and we land, we got there kind of early and they wanted to go like check out downtown San Francisco. And we go down and um, it just so happened that day was the start of Pride Weekend in, in downtown San Francisco. So, <laughs> man, you want you want to I, I mean, mean if, every weekend in San Francisco. if you're you, well, we're not going to go there. But if, if you want to really like take your young daughters to Pride Weekend, you might as well do it in San Francisco, I guess, because, man, yeah. it was a little bit right. wacky, you know, explaining why that guy's just wearing chaps over there to, to my youngest daughter. Um, so, so then we we go back to our place, which is near Union City. And, and I didn't know this either. It was like it's one of the biggest Afghani populations um, in America. So it was cool. You know, I was like, well, let's go get some Afghani food. I love this. My daughter's never been that, you know, it's on the floor. And it was it was sunset. It was Ramadan. And so everyone was out praying all over the sidewalks. And so my, my daughters went from first time to seeing uh, Pride in San Francisco to first time seeing Ramadan at sunset out there. And so um, they, they thought that place was freaking Bananasville. So anyways, my, my daughter the other day asked me where I was going. I told her where I was going. She said, oh, that weird place. Um, 
<laughs> Anyways, uh, before that, I just got back from Toronto at the NHL Combine, um, which was awesome. So, or not the NHL Combine, AOSSM NHL, where we met with a bunch of our NHL folks and gave some presentations on where we're going with them. Um, our buddy Jim McCrossin from um, Philadelphia was there presenting on performance in BFR. He's got some two really cool studies starting up um, looking at BFR in the NHL setting. And so that's where I was at. Where am I going? I am going the week after next. I'm at the Uni Uniform Services University up in D.C. or D.C. area um, doing a big BFR training with clinicians and rehab as well as a bunch of the docs um, for the military um, uh, university up there, which should be pretty cool. So that's my story so far. Kyle, where you at? Yeah. Where you been? Where well, you right now I'm in uh, I'm in Camarillo, California. Okay. Um, I'm actually not at the bar. I'm inside the clinic, but um, for humor purposes, I'm usually always in the bar because it's funny. Um, but uh, I've been here now. Well, let's see. Last course I taught was out in Flagstaff, Arizona, um, in August. At a in I, I didn't even know this, but the Indian reservations have like a big hospital system. And so that course was full of <laughs> PTs that are housed in this Indian type facility. I don't even, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a whole system. It was really interesting. So um, I got a little bit of lay of land when I was there, but there's still a lot. I don't really understand about how that works, but it was cool. Those people were awesome. A lot of those guys actually heard you, Johnny speak at some, like resident conference through the military um, a couple of years ago. It's kind of how that how that all transpired. Uh, and then yeah, uh, it was the Kersey course. That's an annual. That's what it was. Yeah, I yeah, think so, yeah. That's a great course. Always we do yeah. that every year. Yeah. Um, and then um, in a couple of weeks, I'm headed just up the road to Valencia, California, uh, a hospital system called Henry Mayo um, to teach. Their, their clinicians there, and then later in the month, headed out to Overland Park, Kansas, to do a nice a nice open course out there. And what were you doing over the weekend? You, you oh yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, I, I, I totally forgot about that. Uh, so over the weekend, I was speaking at a sports med a football sports medicine conference that was put on by the orthopedist at the at USC. It was run by Dr. Tom Bangsness and Dr. Taboni. Dr. Taboni took the the course that I taught for USC athletic medicine uh, about a month ago and then asked me to speak at that. That was an interesting day because it was mostly orthopedic surgeons who were talking, you know, different surgical procedures and that kind of thing. And they even had um, a couple people speaking on using wearable technology and, and, and force plates and different things like that to try to predict injury, assess movement, that, that, that kind of thing, manage load. Um, and then just kind of going through that whole debate that we tend to be hearing with the teams of who owns that information, you know, the players or the, yeah. or the teams or the leagues. And I know like um, the major league baseball guys, they, they can't use the wearable devices. Now they were able to for around a year. And then the players association kind of, kind of jumped in and said, Hey, hang on a second. We, that we're not necessarily okay with that, which um, is an interesting debate. And I tend to kind of, be on the side of those guys that they think probably that that's really medical information and the players need to kind of yeah. own that, but also understand how to interpret it and, and implement it into their, their training regimens, load management, that, that sort of thing. So that was a fun, that was a fun day. It was a long day, but it was a fun day. I think that's, that's hot and heavy. Like at the NHL, it is. 
um, AOSSM conference, that was the first kind of panel was who, who owns information, who should be in charge really of players care. Uh, because with this unfortunate situation that happened in Maryland, you know, it's, 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 it's right. kind of, a lot of this has shifted from the <laughs> medical side um, to the SNC side or, or, or whoever. And there's, there's a lot of sensitive data. And, and if you want to talk, the most sensitive data is the, the TBI data, you know, baseline and then post baseline changes. And, and there was a collaboration with the NFL and the DOD and, and that's, that's, you know, the DOD is prepared to kind of measure baseline TBI data and it changes in it and then you get paid a, a disability. But, oh, boy, that's a hot topic um, yeah. with these type of. Yeah, people. and it seems like they, they don't necessarily know how to interpret all the data either. It's uh -oh. like, all right, we have wow. all this data, but what does that's, it mean? You know, that's a, I mean, that we could do a whole podcast on that. I mean, yeah, we, we, know, we go we go to these teams and it's like. They measure everything. I mean, sh shoot, over in Europe, um, the amount of, of data collected is crazy. And then it's like, okay, do you even know what that data means? And but then, okay, once you get it, can you change that data? Is is it meaningful, even if you understand right. what it means? So yeah, we're we're in data overload, and, and so we're we're right. gonna use that out. Was was that a uh, a Curlin Job conference or was that a USC conference? No, it was it was USC. They do it. Uh, it's a yearly thing. Um, and then interestingly enough, one of the, the one of the ladies that was speaking on the all the wearable technology and all that, they, they actually have a body computing conference at the end of September out here at USC as well, which was sounds really, really fascinating. So yeah, you have to check that out. Doctor yeah. Dr. Taboni, man. It's cool to that's he's such a he's cool a dude. dude. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, hang out. I spoke at the Pac twelve conference in Vegas a few months ago and first time I really hung out with him. He's he's cool. But we yeah, we'll say if you text anything to someone or to him and you write to bony it will autocorrect is, is dr t-bone um which is <laughs> which i think is kind of cooler but it's awesome. yeah, yeah i'm, I'm sure yeah. he's heard that before um, when you type my name it just defaults to a bitmoji of me so uh, yeah mine defaults to <laughs> the dork all right uh zach where have you been yep. where are you going so i'm currently down in atlanta um uh, a couple weeks ago, I was up in uh, Jersey, did a private course up there at Ivy Rehab. And then um, just last Wednesday, I was up in Fayetteville at Fort Pope, uh, worked with um, different JSOC guys and uh, guys in the Air Force working with CCT guys. Um, so uh, pretty good, pretty good course up there. It was unique to kind of get that perspective yeah. uh, of that having kind of been on, having been on the other side of it. Um, so it, it was really cool to see basically how um, the, the Army, the, the Special Forces groups have integrated uh, their Thor program into the treatment of soldiers and then um, kind of how they uh, go about the transition out of rehab into strength and conditioning and then just kind of monitor them um, yeah, from yeah. there on out. And, and then um, uh, headed to uh, Indianapolis. Uh, in a couple weeks, uh, about two weeks, um, to a uh, an ATI up there. Uh, cool. Yeah. So we got this ATI enterprise wide doing all these trainings all over the country. Yeah. It's all, so Zach, were you actually at Pope or Bragg? Where did they end up doing the course? So it was at Pope. Okay. Um, and then where we yeah we were where we were at was um, 
in um, kind of like a, a treatment room, and then like right down the hallway was their uh, their gym facility, which was pretty sweet. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, think of it as like, I mean, it was like a, a collegiate strength and conditioning room. I mean, they had squat racks lined up along the walls, um, various um, bikes, treadmills. Uh, I mean, it was it was a pretty uh, a climbing rope was hanging from the ceiling. I it's mean, it's still you know, they had answer to still that outside uh kind of that? it's uh, that, that little outside bubble type warehouse right did they have the street it is yeah, yeah 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 so yeah it's like in a like a a, a metal tin building and then um within that and then they have outside they have an actual outside area where um with astro turf where they can you know push sleds do whatever so yeah, yeah. and they uh, you have to use porta potties too <laughs> <laughs> I, I I didn't I didn't go to the bathroom. I I've conditioned myself the whole day. You did it. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, yeah yeah. I, yeah. I, I only did number one though because I, I, I don't. I, I don't I don't I don't have those prostate issues yet. So uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I do. Um. So <laughs> yeah, and, and those guys. I mean, they've already been doing BFR. Um, <clears throat> especially over there, Pope. So we're, we're getting some cool things from them because the one thing too is um, a lot of the combat casualties are still the special forces. I mean, we, we don't have forces, you know, really big force over there anymore, but, but the, the SOCOM um, are the ones where we're seeing a lot of the injuries we saw during the war. So um, those guys are really giving us some good information yeah. still of, of what to do with it. Did you get to meet Ania? Did you all hang out? No, she, um, she actually had to, um, had to do a, an appointment with one of the operators there. So uh, yeah. she sent Cal, which was uh, a, a gentleman that she works with. So I yeah. met him, pretty cool guy. Um, and it was, it was really cool. Um, like I, I was texting you about how they, they basically are using the data from the one study where we talked about Lasartan and PRP. Yeah. They've implemented that with some of their folks. So it's pretty cool to, to look at that and, um, you know, kind of translate that, move that out of that, the road model into the human um, and see basically if we see a, a similar carryover with that reduction in fibrosis and maybe even regeneration of the uh, muscle. Um, so, yeah, that that's what's really, and that's what was great during my times, you know, especially during the war is, is how quickly um, we can kind of move into the clinical practice with a lot of this stuff. I mean, I think that's what really catapulted BFR, obviously. Um, into the clinical setting was just the mass amount of it that we were able to do in the DOD during the wars. Um, yeah. It, so I, I was at the special forces conference presenting several months ago and, and Dr. Lynch up there, we met afterwards and started talking about just some of these early preliminary studies that we have. And it sounds like he's already applying it. I mean, even with orthobiologics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll yep. we'll, yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll get deeper into that. All right, Ben. All right. Well, as Johnny said, I'm right down the hall and here in San Antonio. Um, I just got back yesterday from Boston and did a course with the Bruins up there. And two days before that, on Saturday, I was over at MedStar just outside of Baltimore. And this is the uh, it's apparently the NHL time, I guess, because they're about to start camp up pretty soon. Um, a few weeks before that, I was over in Nashville with Vanderbilt and the Predators. Yeah. So we've had a lot of a lot of NHL movement here recently. Well, NHL and, uh, was our most lagging professional teams as far as who we've worked with of all the leagues. So uh, it's good, man. They're stepping up. <laughs> yeah. 
And, and so the Bruins, um, the Bruins that huh? had to be like the Bruins had to be like the coolest facility. I, I wish I could yeah, have there and seen that. That place is awesome. I mean, it's it's a pretty new facility. Um, they're actually right next door to the the brand new facility for the Celtics. Uh, apparently, you know, New Balance uh, built everything up over there, so everything's brand new. Um, it's a couple years old, but it's you know really cool. They've they've got I guess the second most championships or tied for the second most championships in the NFL or NHL. Um, so they've yeah they've got uh you know all the trophies in there and all the history on the wall one of the original six teams in the NHL. So um, definitely a lot of history there. Very cool to see. And they've got some very, very cool equipment. Yeah, imagine. And where are you going? So I am headed to scenic El Paso, Texas next. So after I uh, piggyback on that San Antonio course with you here on the 15th, we'll I'll be headed to El Paso and then, over to Orlando, Florida at the end of the month to speak at the Florida PT Association conference. Nice. I love El Paso, man. That's a yeah, it's, I always like going out there. Cool. I, I've never Are been. You so Louis, be is that, that Louis Zuniga's place? Is that no, Louis's no. place? Ben? It, it's another it's another group over there. So oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah. A private course though. Yeah, we do a lot out there with Fort Bliss and so the patients that are seen there that go out on the economy outside the base. Um, since a lot of the docs there, we, we know, and they are looking for BFR. Um, they're trying to find places out there that are, that are certified and doing it. So cool. Good stuff guys. Well, um, so I, I guess this is just kind of open discussion here. You know, we, we don't have a full, like, this is our, our theme. Some of the other podcasts, you know, it's going to be like, yeah, okay, let's let's get into deeper what VEGF is or, or what we think is happening with fibrosis or or whatever. Um, but this is an overall kind of, of where we are. So at this point, I had Tori pull the database earlier. We have 3,399 certified providers um, from this last three years that we've been doing this, which which is, that's, that's pretty amazing, man, um, that, that it's taken off to this point. And so I was talking with someone and they said, you know, one thing that's almost better than the clinical trials that we're looking at is just getting this kind of longitudinal perspective kind of data and, and, and even retrospective, like looking at how many BFR sessions have been done. Were there adverse events? If they are, what were there? You know, what are, what are key changes that you're seeing to help kind of, you know, that's almost more powerful than, than a study of 100 people. Um, cause, cause, so I, I broke this down. There's 261 calendar days in, in a year on average out of those 3,400 certified providers, you know, not all of them have a unit that they're working with. A lot of them are certified, but they go like ATI, you know, they're going back, you certify a group and then you go back and there's a, a few units there. But, but I did look at, you know, the number of units, you know, and, and so, we're, you know, around 2,500 or so, if only two of those, or if only for each of those units, if there were only two BFR sessions a day, which we know there's way more per unit per session per day. Because like, Kyle, how many, how many BFR treatments you do with one unit at your clinic on a daily basis? Um, four or five, typically. Okay. So I'm just, I'm just lowballing yeah. it here. Just at two, that's 5,000 BFR treatments a day that we have people doing. 
which that's that's pretty badass. And yeah, because so, Johnny, go ahead, Zach. I was going to say the other thing. I was going to say the other thing to think about with that is, like in our clinic, we have other people that use BFR that aren't certified providers. Right. So that's definitely that's a low ball figure for sure. Low ball, yeah. And so I, I just I just wanted to kind of yeah. even at a low ball, if you do that five thousand per day. For 261 working days, that means we have a million three hundred thousand BFR sessions a year going on. At a low ball, it's probably triple that, you know. Um, so potentially three yeah. million BFR sessions in a clinical setting a year, from everything from geriatrics with total joints to you know your your just typical orthopedic injury to some neurologic conditions um, down to to peds, and so. I, I think so. One thing when you're talking to your surgeon or trying to discuss this with, you know, your clinic director or whoever, um, that that's kind of an interesting number to already know. Like, well, there's over a million. There's probably over three million sessions of this going on in the United States right now. Um, and this is also because we have so many teams. This is also high value targets that are going through these sessions. You know, multi million dollar arms and legs that are getting these treatments. You know, the, the, the Delphi unit that, that we, that we use, it's on workers comp in all the professional leagues. I, I see these comp claims and, and these are, you know, pretty much anyone that gets injured, um, especially now in football season, there's, if it's orthopedic injury, they're getting some form of BFR. And, and so um, I, I think that's just kind of the first thing people just aren't used to it, especially if it's new to them. Of like, well, I'm not sure, you know, are people really doing this? Um, yeah, they're doing it a, a, a ton. And that doesn't even count now, you know, our, our European folks that are doing it and things like that. You guys have any thoughts on that or, or things to add on total number? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, like I know that number is extremely low. And it's like Kyle said, I mean, you're just factoring basically two patients a day. And, you know, if you, if you take in even a, a normal outpatient clinic and you just say eight hour days, you know, if you're treating at probably at least 12 people. Right. Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be significantly higher. And then you factor in the people that are in the clinic that haven't been to the course that are going to use BFR because they were taught by the provider that we went to the course. So right. yeah, I, it's going to be a lot, a lot more than that. It, it, and so I, I think also then it's, it, it's what are the reported adverse events of that? You know, because because people look at the yeah. liter literature and say, OK, is there a reported adverse event? Um, you, what you really want to know is how about in these clinical treatments are, are there reported events? Because the literature, you know, you're, you're talking maybe thousands in the clinical setting. Now we're talking millions of treatment sessions. And so what, what are the reported adverse events? And, and one thing we have a pretty controlled group because we know that our people are trained and, and for the most part do it the way we we um, teach it and also we're, we're standardizing our approach so we're using a system that um, you know FDA device it's a it's got a microprocessor it's regulated so we know the pressures are are at this level we're using the, the Doppler within the system to, to know LLP so it's, it's, it's a pretty standardized approach really adverse event wise pretty much nothing um, there, there are a, a few things. And so there's a recent paper that just came out on a, on a military service member who did BFR and, and developed Rabdo. Um, and, and that's probably, if, if you Google like BFR bad, um, 
you know, other than maybe seeing my my stupid face on that picture, it might, you know, what you probably see first is, you know, rhabdomyolysis because that's what's been reported in the literature. Um, so now we have, we're at four cases, right? Total it reported in the literature. Yep. Is that I think so, yeah. Yeah. So just, yeah. I mean, if you just do that number though, so if, and that's over years, I mean, that's, I think the first reported case was six years ago now. But if we said if there was four reported cases in one year, and we just look at that divided by those million case sessions, that is a 0.0004% incidence rate, um, which is, I mean, that's lower than just rhabdo in the general population by far. So if people throw that out too, like, well, yeah, but I've seen there's rhabdo. It's like, well, and, and Jamie Burr up at University of Guelph, I, I, I never know if I say that name right. In Canada, he wrote a nice editorial um, response um, along with some of his his colleagues up there of like, let's not freak out about this rhabdo thing. When you look at the the denominator, it's it's huge compared to this low numerator up there. And, and, and mechanistically, it just doesn't make sense to get rhabdo after BFR. Do you, do you guys agree with that? Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. So, so rhabdo is, and, and if, if anyone's listening, they don't know what that is. Rhabdo is basically severe muscle damage. Um, it breaks down. You get a, a lot of fluid leakage, um, uh, swelling, a lot of pain. You start to piss brown. Um, if you're a clinician and, and someone ever walks in with any of those signs, you send them straight to the ER. They will uh, take a blood draw and measure for creatine kinase. If CK levels are elevated um, to the certain threshold, then then you admit them to the hospital and can be life-threatening. Usually it's admit, get them on fluids, uh, monitor, and, and then discharge. Um, but from what we pretty much understand with the BFR mechanism side is, is there's not muscle damage. Um, and if there is, it's, it's very, very mild because BFR is a low load. And typically, rhabdo is intensity-based um, or it's load-based, uh, long times under tension, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we don't think mechanistically there's a real play with rhabdo. That, that military case that came out, it looked like they just had a volume issue. You know, the guy did one session of BFR calf raises. He did another session of BFR seated calf raises. He did another session of BFR for ankle um, exercises. I forgot what it was. I think it was E version and plantar flexion like that. Each one of those sessions is 75 reps. So, so the dude did like 300 BFR reps, uh, 300 reps of anything is a potential issue. So we, we think that one was a volume issue. The, the first reported case was a hockey player over in Europe. Um, and if you read closely, the, the player was doing some BFR post-op he developed rhabdo, but then in the conclusion, they said once the player got out of the hospital, they restarted his BFR sessions. Um, so I don't think the authors were even concerned that BFR was was the causality of that. And the other ones, um, there were things that you can look at for for potential rhabdo producers. One was sick and on some medications. Um, and so those those are the things I, th I think that we just want to say. Well, let's let's at least look at this with a grain of salt. Um, you guys agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think like you said, it looks like as long as you're dosing it appropriately, the, the risk is very, very, very minimal. Yeah, you sh I mean, direct markers, we've, we've seen those. Blood draw, CK levels don't seem to be elevated. Myoglobin leakage, which is even a more sensitive marker. 
Um, we don't we don't see that happens after BFR. Jacob Nielsen's group um, and Per Argard over there in Denmark, they, they did show that your body kind of responds almost like there was a muscle damage effect. So heat shock proteins were released. Um, there were some inflammatory markers, um, which are things you want to happen from resistance exercise. But the actual signs of muscle damage weren't there. Um, and, and they did measure for, you know, uh, changes in myoglobin and um, leakage, which is a pretty sensitive test. And they didn't show that. So if anyone throws rhabdo at you, I, I think we, we, we can definitely talk through that and say, look, I, I don't think we should be concerned with this. If you are concerned and if someone's had rhabdo or there's a potential that they, they could, um, then, then you should probably screen for that. And, and maybe, maybe athlete, you know, these teams that works with athletes who are doing a lot of intensive exercise outside of BFR, um, TT screen, TIE, TZE, I think, um, that one is, is just a real basic one. It's a checkoff. If you've had any of these things, then we might need to monitor you a little bit closer. So that really, that's the main thing that we've seen out of these millions of clinical cases is a few reports, um, of, of rhabdo. We've had a couple of syncope episodes, uh, two total that I know of that, that have been reported. And so both females, both after we were able to get a little bit deeper into um, maybe potential outside factors, uh, both looked like they were dehydrated um, from, from different things. Well, uh, both of them dehydrated probably from being kind of sick prior to doing that BFR session. So uh, that might be a hydration status. Um, not sure, you know, if, the, if there is a female thing, um, probably not. Um, or even Dr. Kahalen, who's on our science advisory board, he's our kind of go-to cardiac rehab guy. You know, he said there is a vasovagal response um, in, in athletes. You know, a lot of them are just known to, to pass out when they see a needle. And, and so maybe that's correlation with those. We're not sure. Other than that, I don't think we've had any reports of any other events that have happened. You guys have anything that y'all can think of? Nothing that I'm aware of. Um, the only thing I've maybe heard is, you know, a little bit of, you know, joint swelling acutely after, you know, applying it early post-operative, but that seems to be pretty transient and go away quickly. And um, after a couple sessions, doesn't really seem to be there. Kyle, Zach, anything you've been reported from all your folks you work with? Nothing. Nothing on my end. We just we, when we were testing the new device and the engineer was here, we had a couple people not be a fan of the pressure, but yeah, yeah. it was more entertaining than it was a problem. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, and that's obviously not an adverse event, but but it is. I mean, it is kind of rough, and so I it is. Use this story. Have to factor in. Yeah, I mean, we had a, a female service member one time who said, I can't even stand when they do the blood pressure cuff on my arm. Um, and we're like, oh, boy, you're going to hate this today. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and, that's, right. and you don't have to use the pressures that we recommend um, in those cases. I mean, you can you can take the pressure down prior to application, you know, maybe use a lower limb occlusion pressure or, or personalized tourniquet pressure. Um, and if they tell you already I'm a little squeamish, I would definitely start with a lower pressure. And then ease them into it. What about you, Zach? Anything? Yeah, um, kind of similar to what Kyle said. The um, I've had I think like one or two people complain of like claustrophobia. So yeah. they said like basically with a cuff on, they just started getting claustrophobic. 
Um, but it was, it's only been, you know, just a, a, a few uh, people, but uh, I was pretty surprised because I had never even considered that being an issue um, until it was a, it was a military guy told me that. And then um, probably two weeks later, I had another lady tell me that she was getting claustrophobic as well. So that was it. Yeah, and they and they might be just getting a little bit anxious too. I I would I would think. Yeah, it could be that from the pressure, just like you know, like Kyle was saying. You know, sometimes because yeah, it's like you said with uh, the lady in the military. I mean, that pressure gets a little tight. So yeah, yeah. Well, and and so I guess back to our roundabout point then. What you're going to see reported in the literature um, primarily is those rhabdo cases. Um, beyond that, we really don't have any other adverse events that, that we can that we can say that we're worried about. And now we're at you know millions of clinical BFR sessions a year over over several years now. Um, so so that looks positive because when you take our course, we definitely go deep into the safety uh, of BFR. We we were, we were lucky here in San Antonio when when we were starting at the base that we had tourniquet experts, we had physiologists, we had our orthopedic department, our rehab folks, all kind of vetting the safety first before we move forward with doing it on warriors. And and we got really to, we, we had to understand exactly the best and safest way to apply it, which is what we do. But but really, after we looked at it, it's like, man, this looks really fairly safe. So again, if that's thrown at you from a surgeon, a doc, your clinic director, your own fears, um, I, I, I think that's something that, that we can put aside. Okay. So then what, what do you guys do to like, I'm, I'm talking more to you, to you, Zach and Kyle, who are, are doing it more in the clinical setting every day now. What do you, what do you guys do if you got a new patient from a, a doc you haven't really worked with um, to say, hey, I, I want to try BFR on this post-op ACL? Well, I, I uh, you know, I talked to the patient first, I, really. I mean, um, because they're right there in front of me. Um, and, and nowadays, a lot of the docs out here are at least somewhat familiar. Um, we had, we did have one this week who, who was not. And so my boss just called up his office and we're going to go down there and, and, and chat with him at some point and kind of explain some things. We initially, we just sent him those, those two journal of arthroscopy articles that just came out uh -huh. and those techniques and orthopedics papers that came out. And then I'm probably going to shoot him over those, that pre-op total knee one and, and, and a couple of those ACL ones too. Um, so we shared some articles with them, but I, I think mostly you need to be able to have a conversation. Um, with with the surgeon because those guys don't want to sit and read you know paper after paper after paper they want to see that there's literature out there but they don't have time yeah what about the conversation and understand it all what about you zach yeah i i tend to agree with kyle um so a lot of times what what they'll say is like well get send me some level one evidence and so you send them that but then they if you can have a conversation and, and, and you know, realize that the surgeon is, these the orthopedic surgeons are pretty busy. Um, and so if you can just get a five minute, 10 minutes with them and say like, look, you know, what are some of the problems that you see with your ACL? Cause we know the issues on the rehab side, we have prolonged atrophy and, and a lack of quad strength. And the data is there to support that. Mm -hmm. And so we know that it's an issue. And we know that we have surgical limitations 
in the early phases of rehab. And then you can, you, you know, we have data that says, you know, within a week to two weeks, it takes 12 weeks of high intensity strength training to get that back. All that stuff is great. But they know that we have these issues and say, like, look, we can abide by the surgical limitations or the, you know, that, that, that have been uh, placed on us and we can minimize this atrophy, help them and expedite the, re the rehab and get them back to where they need to be at a faster time point. You know, and we have some ACL studies out there that actually show this. Um, so um, that's what I'll do. And um, I, I will say, I think that one of the biggest things that I hear from surgeons is like, no, I don't want to do BFR. I don't want to restrict blood flow. My surgery or my repair needs all the blood flow it can get. Yeah. And so when that question or when that, when that comment comes up, you know, you need to be able to basically say, well, look, you know, it's a transient reduction of blood flow. What we actually see is once we deflate the cuff, we have a surgeon and post occlusion blood flow. And then, you know, when we do this chronically, we have about a 14 to 15% increase in capillary density distal to the cuff. So we're actually stimulating blood, uh, you know, capillary growth and an increase in long-term blood flow. So this could be a, a very good positive effect for us. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that whole, well, I don't want blood flow stopped because my repair needs blood flow. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of those like, oh, OK, here we go. But yeah, I think I think if we can explain a little bit of like, yeah, brief bouts, brief bouts of oxygen deprivation or hypoxia in a limb. It, it, man, it seems to be a very positive effect for a lot of things beyond just the, the muscle. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, once the bone gets into a low oxygen state, you get this HIF-1A expression and then vascular endothelial growth factor um, comes out and creates angiogenesis, which is, I mean, if we can see that change intraarticularly, man, then, then we're looking at stuff with, with yeah. our ACL repairs. So yeah, that's good. That, that's good stuff. And we're going to yeah. talk about these kind of like, what are some go-to papers maybe? to send out. You guys don't use a consent form um, for the patient, right? No. I, I think, okay. Zach? No. Yeah, C correct, Johnny. We, we yeah. don't, um, and then really the only time we, we go to the a surgeon it, or the a physician is following a surgery. If someone comes in and is referred um, for conservative treatment or they come in direct access, we just go ahead and, um, you know, if we think BFR is needed, we'll just go ahead and do BFR. Yeah. And that varies state by state, obviously. So, and we, and we ran that question mm -hmm. through our inner circle, how many people use patient consent forms? And by far, the majority of the group doesn't. Um, and, and so I, I ran that question by, by my buddy, Justin Moore, who's the CEO of APTA. Um, of, of what do you, what a, from an APCA standpoint, what do they think? And, and basically um, agreed with what our current practice is that, you know, if, if something's a, a higher than normal risk, like you're going in for surgery, you have to sign a consent form because that's a higher than normal risk um, for something that you're doing. As BFR, basically looking at our overall safety profile, it doesn't seem to be a higher than, than normal risk type of thing. So there's no individual consent that's needed. Now, it sounds like Justin, those guys are going to look at it a little bit deeper to get, you know, maybe rubber stamp that. Um, but, but that's a question we, we get quite a bit. And, and I guess we can fall back. You know, we have all these clinical trials going on all over the place. Um, you know, 20 something just of our own. 
for the IRBs, we've never had to go um, into uh, an IDE, like an investigational device exemption, because this study was deemed higher than normal risk. Um, so even in the studies, too, we don't have to deal with it being a, a little bit more higher risk than normal. So papers then. Kyle, you said you send out the two JR arthroscopy papers that came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, let's let's kind of yeah. let's, let's kind of talk about those because I, I think those are awesome because they're level five. So you know we'll, we'll say right. that. But lots of times, like you said, if you send the doc, well, hey, here's a level one JFIS paper that you know that that talks about all these kind of factors and and positive adaptations that happen at BFR. Their, their eyes are probably going to roll in their head whenever you hand it to them. But for people that don't know, Journal of Arthroscopy is is uh, is a pretty big dog orthopedic journal. Um, so I, I looked it up. It's it's five year impact factors four point six. They um, are the official journal of the of the Arthroscopy Association of North America, ANA, and so they typically are not putting rehab papers in their journal. So let me see, I pulled up the other day, let's see what a typical journal looks like. Um, so here's, you know, here's the current issue. Uh, anterior lateral ligament, let's stick to the facts. Um, arthroscopic subacromal space or implantation in patients with massive rotator cuff. Arthroscopic, uh, arthroscopic partial repair, repair rotator cuff. So it's all surgical, 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 surgical. And most of your Sports med docs or just general orthopedic surgeons get J arthroscopy, and that's kind of one of their go-to journals. And so in this most recent article, they put out two rehab level five evidence papers specifically on blood flow restriction, which that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's crazy. And, and so, Very cool. yeah, the first one was from Dr. Brian Day. Uh, who is a very well-respected orthopedic surgeon out of Canada. And so Dr. Day was the past president of the Arthroscopy Association of North America. So pretty much all the arthroscopy docs know of Dr. Day. And, and he basically laid out like, look, this BFR stuff, it looks positive. And I, and I think we should be looking at, at doing BFR. I mean, he even broke it down to like, I, I want – certified providers doing it who understand the use of a tourniquet and understand how to do it. I even put in there, I also want the Delphi system used because we can standardize that. It's the safest approach and all that, which was, which was all pretty like, wow, that's, that's cool. Dr. Day. Um, so I, I think that one was, was huge and impactful. And then the second paper in that same journal was from the folks over at Stedman Philippon, um, and an author from Howard Head. And so if you guys don't know, you know, Stephen Philippon, it's out in Bell. It's one of the top orthopedic um, groups in the country. Um, it was Stephen Hawkins, and, and now um, Dr. Philippon's name is on there. But it was from Dr. LaPrade, um, was, was the corresponding author on it, who is the medical director uh, for Stephen Philippon. And, and basically, he's, he's the multi-ligament knee doc um, guru out there. So, you know, pretty much all the Olympic uh, – uh, knee injuries, go see Dr. LaProd. And, and basically he put, he put out a paper saying, this is what we think should be done post knee surgery with BFR. And then basically also rubber stamp that we think BFR should be done after these knee surgeries. Um, so 
I agree with you, Kyle, sending those over to the docs. Those are, those are good ones because they kind of sum up the evidence. And then they say, look, I do this and this is how I like to do it. Um, right. So do you think your docs now, when you send that over, have they said anything to you since using those Kyle or are you just that it's kind of your packet? Not, like, yeah, kind of my packet. Not, I haven't really had any feedback on that yet. Um, we've got, you know, people that we kind of talk to routinely. And so a lot of times we'll just, when I get something, I'll just shoot it over so that they have it. And then you can kind of refer back to it later when you're, when you're chatting with them. Cool. I, I, I think they're, they're great to have in your kind of arsenal. Then, then the other one you mentioned, Kyle, um, I think is good. We, I was guest editor on techniques and orthopedics, um, which is another orthopedic journal. And, and we basically were able to do a whole journal, uh, just on BFR. So we had, well, I think five papers from a bunch of my buddies around the world here. So that, that one is everything from Jeremy and, and his group down at Ole Miss wrote, wrote the mechanisms of BFR. Um, myself and, and Dr. Kahalen and the folks down at, at Miami wrote safety uh, with, with more of the higher risk patients like the hypertensives, what we know so far, we did a meta-analysis systematic review. Uh, Bradley Lambert, who, who's a, a really smart muscle phys guy down in Houston and his group uh, wrote on the anabolic effects that we see and how we can apply that clinically to maximize protein synthesis. Kyle Hackney, who, who was at NASA, now he's at North Dakota State, super smart guy, along with some of our military docs, wrote um, how we can use this for the sarcopenic, the elderly patient. Uh, Luke Hughes and Stephen over in, in, in England wrote on BFR and its application post-surgically, especially with ACL. And then, and then Dr. Bradner and Stuart Warmington, they're in Australia, and, and Cutter out of Aspire wrote um, the side effects of what BFR is and, and the things that we might want to be aware of. If you're like, what, what's like one go-to source where I can get all the information? I mean, I, I think that's like perfect for the clinical setting. Don't you guys agree? Yeah, that's probably the yeah. most com comprehensive thing out there we can pass along that's, you know, probably speaking their language because it's in one of their, you know, one of the docs journals. I would like buy that journal. I, mean, I'm not, <laughs> I, I don't get any kickbacks from that, but I, I would buy that journal and like, hey, here, if, if you're concerned, why don't you read this one? This is in one of y'all's orthopedic journals. It's got all these papers um, basically explaining this and how and why we should be doing it. Um, I, and then I think some of the other papers, Kyle, you mentioned the uh, prehab one from the guys over in, in Dusseldorf in Germany. Yeah. That one's yeah. awesome. Doc, Dr. Franz and, and Dr. Zilkins. Dr. Zilkins, um, he's the chief medical officer over this, this humongous healthcare system. Um, or, or hospital system. He's, he's the head of endoprosthetics um, care. And, and they basically, so we have a, a study going with them in, in total hips, uh, but they, they wrote a great hypothesis paper of like, this is what we think BFR can do from a prehab setting um, prior to surgery. Because I think that's an easy like way to get in to the docs too. It's like, okay, if you're nervous about it surgically, how about we do it pre-surgery? All right. Or how about we do it when you think you're far enough outside of surgery, but this patient isn't doing well? You know, that was kind of the way we started was, okay, it's 12 weeks out. This patient's struggling. We feel pretty comfortable that there's no surgical issues anymore. Let's go ahead and try it on this patient and just see what the effects are. Um, so I, I think that's a pretty good yeah. approach. I can tell you, Johnny, um, my uncle actually had 
a total knee. Uh, it's been about a year ago now, and he needed a total knee for probably about 10 or 15 years. And so I have the images of his knee intraoperatively, and it is scary. It's amazing he was still walking on that thing. Um, but he did, I, I got him in with uh, a buddy of mine to do BFR preoperatively. And he, he was really just amazed first that he was able to feel his quad. And he got some muscle back and then post-operatively the doctor was like i don't i just don't want you doing that bfr thing um but his recovery was fantastic i mean he was yeah i think he was discharged from pt in about six to eight weeks and feeling better than he had in gosh 10 15 years for sure he's going up and down ladders he's a he's a blind guy so he's does window coverings and, and that sort of thing and wow. so he's got to be up and down ladders for his job and uh and he bounced back remarkably well and, and he really kind of gives i mean it's just an end of one but he personally gives all the credit to doing all that bfr work preoperatively so, so i i thought cool. you yeah. i thought you meant he is blind like he can't see i know <laughs> <laughs> the funny the best the best part is is that the name of his company is the blind man and so you know he has on the side of his truck driving around town the blind man <laughs> well and, and so like it's been great that we've helped and worked so much with these pro athletes and, and these soldiers. Um, but man, this, this guys like him, this sarcopenic geriatric population, I mean, I've always said this and I think you guys all agree. That is the group that can probably benefit the most from, from this. And, and so I, I mean, I think that's the perfect approach because a lot of these total joint docs are, are really anxious, especially with their incisions, et cetera. But most patients, have to go through therapy and kind of fail therapy before they get approved to get a, a joint replacement. So, I mean, that's like the perfect time, I think, because, you know, you might not make them avoid joint replacements. We actually did see that with a few that we saw at Center for the Intrepid, you know, they just got better. You know, I had one guy, he's like, I just need to get up my stairs to go to my second floor. Um, and he got to where he could do that. He canceled his, his total joint surgery, but at least you're sending them in with a, with a pretty good muscle. You know, because that just kind of gets ignored lots of times. So, yeah, man, that's that's yeah. a perfect target. Um, and then lastly, and, and I'm, Tori's going to put links to all these papers if people want to go after them. We, we have a bunch of DOD papers that we can put on there, too. And in every one of these DOD papers, um, there's there's an orthopedic surgeon that's involved um, in that study. So Dr. Burns, who uh, is a good buddy of mine, who was with me starting this from the get go. He runs our sports medicine program here. Um so, you know, he's on them, um, and as well as like AJ Johnson, who is the chair of all orthopedics. So those, 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 I think this is just kind of a good start to get in people's minds. Um, Kyle, you're going to have to get going and do patient care, right? Yeah, here shortly. I got about seven minutes. Okay. Well, unless you guys have anything to add to that, just kind of general, these are some of the go-to papers that aren't the deep science papers that we'll get into. Um, adverse events, how many sessions we do. Anything y'all want to add before we move into our, our interview with Travis? No. I think that just about has yeah. it. I was that badass, or I just talked that damn much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to cut to uh, an interview here with, with a guy who was with me from the very start of this. He's a co-author on our very first BFR retrospective paper in the journal Special Forces, um, Dr. Travis Burns, to, to kind of talk about 
his thoughts when we first came to him with this crazy idea and moving forward with it, where he thinks it's going. And then also just kind of some general orthopedic questions, which I don't think uh, a lot of the therapists get to hear enough of, of his concerns with his surgeries and, and what he hates about rehab and loves about rehab and et cetera, et cetera. So, all right, guys, um, I'm going to cut out and, and do my talk with Travis, and then we'll be back to, to take some of the questions that came in from our last podcast. All right, so now we're moving into our uh, interview uh, portion of the Orange Recovery Science podcast. And, and so I, I really wanted to, to take a step back. You know, we've been talking about discussing this um, with your referring orthopedic surgeon or a referring doctor and, and, and how you would, you would get this ball going. Um, and, and so this is one of the, the OG episodes, which um, I've, got, I've got Dr. Travis Burns on here. He, he's not super hip. So Travis OG is, is hip language for old guy. Um, and so, I appreciate that. yeah, this is the old guy episode, but actually Travis, <laughs> Travis was, uh, was in the early days, um, um, starting blood flow restriction at the center for the intrepid and, and, and our base San Antonio military medical center, um, and, and really kind of helped us to bring it forward, especially in the post-operative patient. And, and so just want to give Travis's bio here. So, um, he, he did a sports medicine fellowship at West Point. Um, he's a, he's a chief of sports medicine at, at our base, San Antonio Military Medical Center for the past seven years. Um, he, he's making the big leap, man. How, how much time do you have left until you're, you're completely I'm out actually, of the military? I'm actually starting clinics next week. So nice happening man. quickly. Nice. Well, congratulations. That's a big change. So he will be moving yeah. out of the military setting. Um, how, how many total years in the military? I'll be at 15 years when I get out. 15. Okay. So 15 years in the military. Um, so um, did it, you know, he's a West Point trained uh, sports med uh, fellow. He did sports team coverage out at West Point, um, covers a bunch of the high schools, works with the U.S. Olympic team. Um, very published. Uh, a, lo a lot of us in our group, especially during the war, um, were, were really able to get a lot of good publications out. And, and so um, he's, he's just a great person for us to, to have on board for this first one. So, Travis, I guess let's let's go in the, the way back machine here. Um, so we kind of talk about when we give lectures on this or, or teach it that, that we had kind of three target populations that we were that we were having problems with at our base. The, the first one was our limb salvage group. We developed this exoskeleton um, that was trying to help them avoid delayed amputation, but if they weren't really strong in their thigh, we, we found out that thing just didn't work. And then most of these people um, who had really bad trauma couldn't tolerate loads at all, so we had to find a low load alternative. And so that was one target group. Um, second group was these volumetric muscle losses. So we found that people who had lost chunks of muscle, uh, we really didn't get any regenerative response. Um, and they would just kind of stall out on strength. So working with the Institute of Surgical Research, uh, we were looking at mince grafts and ways to regrow muscle tissue. And, and we found that if you, if you did apply this regenerative type of approach that you had to get some sort of big anabolic stimulus to, to make the muscle respond and hopefully reduce fibrosis. So that was a second. Uh, population. And, and everyone thinks during war that, uh, you know, we're primarily seeing amputees and limb salvage and, and blast trauma. But, you know, Brett Owens and those guys put a paper out that the 10 years of war, um, they, they looked at the ACL rate and we had 50,000 ACLs during that period as well. So the biggest population really 
is the folks that you were seeing, and that's the, the typical orthopedic sports medicine population, the, the ACLs and, and other types of injuries like that. So um, I, I guess I don't think we can remember like when we got together, um, kind of discussing BFR. Our first three papers that come out of the DOD, you're on all three of them. So I don't know if you know this, but I think you're the most published BFR orthopedic <laughs> surgeon in the country now. You're, you're the expert. Um, yeah, there you go. But I mean, what, I guess, what were your first thoughts when we started to say, hey, man, we're going to put tourniquets on people, um, knock their blood out and, and do these exercises with a tourniquet on after your surgeries? Yeah, you know, I don't remember the exact date either that we had those conversations, but I, I very clearly remember you calling or um, us get together and talking about it. And you say, hey, I've got this idea to, to use tourniquets um, to increase strength recovery for, you know, quadriceps muscle weakness. Um, post-op recovery and certainly at the time as a surgeon you start immediately going to you know what complications can come from this and you certainly want to think about things that can cause a problem um, and think about it to make sure that you're not going to make something worse before you make something better so you know from that perspective the first thing you start thinking is are you going to have wound complications from this are you going to you know induce some type of DVTs that could lead to PEs um, or is there, you know, some other secondary gain or secondary injury uh, that could come from um, applying something after surgery? So those are all the, the thoughts that, that I immediately had. But when you started showing me some of the literature, certainly the strength training that was done initially on it, um, not in operative patients, the, the literature and the information was compelling. And some like some, you know, this is this is something that's really interesting. And um, I think after those initial conversations. Um, you know, with, with my background of sports medicine and also um, trying to delay the old guy phenomenon, you know, try to try to get to the gym and work out in the morning. Um, Joe Alderetti and I would take tourniquets and started doing squats with with tourniquets on our legs initially just to see what it felt like and, and see, see what kind of problems we were going to cause to ourselves before uh, before we looked any further. And um, just using them ourselves, you could tell that something physiologically was different whenever you were exercising with some type, with some amount of occlusion um, in your muscles. And, and so um, that, that was really interesting, just trying it ourselves and, and then kind of putting our heads together and start trying to think of ways, how can we um, go about this in a scientific way to make sure that it's safe um, and how early we can use it in the post-operative period and still allow it to be safe. And so, um, you know, and, and obviously in the evolution of, of um, how this has grown is just, I mean, it's really taken off. And I think that that speaks to um, how effective it is. I think, you know, it seems like every day there's a new technology or a new injection or, um, you know, a new stem cell that comes out that, that people want to try as, an, as the latest and greatest. And those things uh, have either pre pretty quickly faded or. A lot of questions. Around. Kind of yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think in all the, all the data that's come out about this, um, and as, as that body of literature is growing, has certainly shown how effective uh, tourniquets can be and how safe they are. Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, because from the orthopedic surgeon's perspective, you guys deal with tourniquets all the time, um, so you're used to it. But but they're kind of a means to an end. You know, it's it's I guess it's almost like a love hate relationship because um, there's you know we know in the joint population the Put a tourniquet on. The longer you have it on, there, there, you know, might be more post-operative pain. You know, there might be more 
uh, issue getting the quad going. And, and so I know what, like when I talked with Walt Lowe initially down in Houston, that was the thing like, Hey, I get tourniquets hundred percent, but, um, you know, there's, there's things that happen with tourniquets, but, but I think y'all's just comfort level with it. Uh, maybe ortho side buy in much quicker than say like some, some of the primary care docs that, you know, that we hear these the clinicians talk to or, you know, non-surgical kind of MDs that are like, yeah, all, all we know is that tourniquets are bad. Um, so I think getting you guys early on has, has helped this a ton. So who, who handled those workouts yeah, yeah. better, man, you or Joe Alderetti? <laughs> Joe, Joe's a lot tougher than I am, so uh, he, 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 he did more. But, but, but I would tell you, that one, one thing I would um, throw out there to, you know, anybody who has any concern about use of tourniquets and, you know, are we causing damage, is the tourniquet pressure um, in, in your BFR um, use is much lower than the tourniquet pressures that we use in surgery, and it's much lower than the old tourniquet literature where they were showing, you know, complications. So, you know, historically, um, people talk about inflating tourniquets to 350 or 400 millimeters of mercury um, uh, historically and, and, and would talk, talk about complications related to that. And, and in surgery now, people use tourniquets at 250 millimeters of mercury to 300 millimeters of mercury and, and can use it up for up to two hours um, continuously. And that's that's a lot different than the tourniquet pressure and the time use uh, when you do it for BFR. I mean, for, for BFR, it's up somewhere around 100, 150 millimeters of mercury, and you're only doing it for eight minutes at a time. And so yeah. I think for people who have concerns about tourniquet use and their safety, and they're looking at old surgical literature, they have to make sure that they recognize that it's a significantly different pressure and a, a, a length of time that you're being, that it's being used. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and so, um, Let's, let's kind of what diagnoses are you primarily using it with now? So um, let's just start kind of low level, like routine scopes, BFR. Yes or yeah, no? Yeah. I, I would, yeah. Honestly, I, I'd love to use it for everybody. Our, our biggest limitation is in having availability to get to the therapist that can do it. I would yeah. use it for 100% of my knee surgeries um, if, we had, if we had the capability to do that. Unfortunately, yeah. we're a little bit limited um, in the, in the therapist that we have that can do the uh, BFR. And so I kind of have to pick and choose, um, the patients that I think would benefit the most from it and need it the most. Um, so routine knee arthroscopies now, I don't, uh, send them over unless it's a, a special ops guy or somebody who's, um, um, I really think, uh, needs to be on an aggressive accelerated protocol. Right. And, and so you had a, if you got a big old multi-leg, revision come in um you're a little nervous on it you're comfortable with with those folks starting it as well yeah absolutely yeah um I, I, you know the the people who i think get the most benefit from it who the patients come back and be like wow that's amazing are the people who've been languishing in traditional therapy for six months or nine months yeah um they come in they still have knee pain they still have profound quad weakness on exam and you and you sit there and tell them you know, the answer for your problem isn't surgical. The answer for your problem really is therapy and you getting stronger. And they, and they look at you and they almost get mad because like, I've been in therapy for nine months. It's not helping. I need surgery now. Yeah. But, um, uh, when we first started talking about this, a patient comes, comes to mind really clearly who had a, uh, knee scope, um, by an outside provider. And, um, I think she, I think she was a, um, college long distance runner and 
um, had a misco for something um, somewhat minor. I think it was a, it was a plica excision or something. He came came to see me for a second opinion and with ongoing knee pain and really really profound quad weakness, and had been working with their trainers at school and uh, hadn't been able to get back onto the team and uh, return to long distance running at her previous level. And this is pretty early on in the course of BFR. I said, well, listen, we got something that we can try, um, but you're going to have to work hard at it. But if you do, I think that you're going to get, you know, significant strength gains from it. And uh, we sent her, um, I think maybe, I can't remember, if, I think maybe you treated her um, and uh, did BFR on her. And uh, she came back to see me three months later and literally gave me a hug in clinic and said she was back on the team and running. And so, she, I mean, she had a rapid turnaround, um, and, and I didn't really even have to do anything. I just talked to her about it and sent her to see you guys. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I, those, those patients who, who are so frustrated and, and um, haven't been able to kind of get over the hump are the, are the ones who um, come back into the happiest just because they've, they've um, you know, failed for so long. Those are, those are my favorites, too, because um, after surgery, you're already kind of down and out, and you, and you just kind of expect to slowly progress and get better. But the ones who are so frustrated, and they're, like you said, six months out, and um, man, I, I just can't. I've done 90 freaking quad exercises on this girl, and I don't know what's wrong. And, and then all of a sudden, um, it's, it's like the muscle wakes up when you do it, and, and, and you can see it. I mean, it's, it's like this rapid change. And so that, that's kind of what I tell a lot of people, too. It's like, okay, if you're just starting this and, and you're getting some pushback or you're reluctant, I, I would go to an orthopedic surgeon and say, can I have your failures or not your failures? You don't say that, but can I, can I have your strugglers? You know, someone that comes six months later for a follow-up, they're like, man, I'm just still having a hard time. And I've, I've done this traditional rehab and, and send those to me. And, and when you turn those people around, that's, that's the ones that you guys usually remember like, damn, okay, now we need to rethink it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. I, um, those are the frustrating patients in a surgeon's office that take a lot of your time and that yeah. you, um, you sit and you try to educate them and you, and you're really trying to talk them out of surgery whenever they are there trying to talk you into surgery. And so it's kind of this role reversal situation where you're like, I'm, you don't have any surgical pathology in your knee. You really have quad weakness and I'm telling you, your knee pain is going to get better. And you, then you sit there and argue with them about how hard they've been doing in therapy, how often they're going. But those patients that come in that, you know, return to your office that, you know, legitimately are trying to get better and they're working hard with therapy and they just can't get over the hump. I tell you, those, those people, those people do awesome and, um, yeah. you know, are, um, are, are thankful and they don't have to go through another procedure. And so it's, it really is. A, it's a win for everybody. Yeah, that, that's that's something that's a little off topic here, but but that was what was also amazing. Um, our our time together for for that past decade was you guys were usually looking for reasons to to not have to do surgery. You know, there's no monetary gain on your end in in the military from doing. It's just more more work when there's probably you know plenty of people that that really need it. So. Um, you guys were always looking for a, a rehab solution and we always had this big team approach where I could be like, it's just not working, Travis. And you would be like, well, you know, the other side, Hey, Johnny, I don't, I don't want to do surgery on this one. See what you can do. Um, I, I think too, the one that's, that's probably really annoying to walk into your office is the, the anterior knee pain patient. Um, that's looking for any solution that's quick. Um, and, and you guys, you know, there's just not a whole lot of solutions. And, and anecdotally, um, and now two published papers, uh, we've seen that, that that population seems to respond pretty well, especially from an analgesic effect um, from BFR. And, and so do you send those on um, if you get them to, to try and find someone that might be doing BFR? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's again, that's, uh, that has solved a problem in my practice. And, you know, prior to BFR, the patient's coming with anterior knee pain, and I kind of give them a talk that anterior knee pain is similar to low back pain, that it's going to wax and wane. And I think that we can make it better with, you know, altering a couple things, maybe trying to reduce how much they keep their knee bent, trying to get their quad stronger, try to improve flexibility of their hamstrings. And, you know, you start trying to talk patients through that process and their eyes kind of glaze over and think mm-hmm. that, you, and they think that you're just kind of trying to dismiss them. Um, so now, you know, it, it's nice. You kind of give them the full talk about anterior knee pain and say, but listen, I've got something that I think can help us jumpstart this process and um, get you going in the right direction. And we have this, you know, new innovative therapy um, and, you know, and, and all of a sudden they get interested, they're back engaged in, you know, in their outcome, back engaged in their treatment. Yeah. And, um, and, and I, you know, and, and they do well from it. And and so, it that's kind but, of been the problem with anterior knee pain is we as a, as our profession, we, we kind of like started moving away from the quad and, and it's all, if you look at, you know, kind of the leaders in this space, it's like, okay, get the hip strong, get the hip strong, get the hip strong. But part of that's kind of a cop out because everything you did that addressed the quad would make their knee worse and you were in this vicious cycle. And so we're, we're, we're always like ignoring the quad, but it's like, man, if you get that quad stronger, it, it's amazing how much it clears that thing up. And, and most of these folks can handle a low load. And, and, and when they're doing BFR, all they feel is the damn tourniquet um, or, or the metabolites. They, they don't feel their knee anymore. You know, you ask them, how's your knee feel? Like, my knee feels fine. It's my stupid thigh and, and this tourniquet that yep. I feel more than anything else. So, um, well, Exactly right. And, you know, and there's something to that with, with the amount of pain that they're in. And, you know, they, whenever their quad gets so weak that they have, you know, basically worsening and worsening anterior knee pain, then it becomes more painful for them to do any exercises. So trying to get enough load on their quad to reverse that cycle um, becomes difficult because they're just not willing to tolerate that pain and they feel like they're making themselves worse. And so being able to kind of redirect that pain towards muscle soreness and take the pain away from the knee and be able to lower the load that they need to get that muscle hypertrophy. I think, I mean, it's, it's, it's really an an effective process for them. How about fractures? Have you ever since any of your fractures? Yeah, you know, fortunately, I've got some good trauma partners that um, handle handle a lot of the of the um, fractures. But whenever I'm on call and get ankle fractures or plateaus, um, those patients have been sent uh, from the trauma team um, over to get to, get, uh, to BFR. And I, and I certainly think it's it's similar um, um, with with the restrictions that that you'd have for you know multi leg knee, where uh, you want to reduce loads across the knee um, and uh, want to re- reduce uh, joint reaction forces uh, while the while the fracture is healing, and and the BFR can allow you to maintain those restrictions while still giving them means of, of regaining muscle strength after their injury and after surgery. So, yeah, so I think those patients can certainly benefit a lot. Yeah, you know, we we think there's some things that that might be beneficial to bone. Um, vascular growth factor comes out. It, it looks like when you do BFR, which builds capillary beds for callus formation, um, interstitial fluid flow, the pressure between the muscle and the bone increases. And there's animal models that show tourniquets on, on osteotomies will heal those up quicker. There's, there's receptors on bone for growth hormone to, to promote collagen synthesis. Myostatin goes down, which might increase bone specific alkaline phosphate. So we kind of go into all that stuff and, and, but then it's like, but, you know, if none of that really helps the bone, at least they kept the freaking muscle strong. 
um, yeah. during this limited use time. And, and really, I mean, the biggest BFR study in the world right now is a fracture study um, that we have going with metric. You know, we're, we're trying to get 250 subjects um, on, on femur fractures. So that's the thing, too. Some folks are like, yeah, you know, I'm nervous with bone. But it's like, man, we got, we got like 100 subjects already enrolled that have been doing it on femur fractures close to the cuff and not an issue at all. Um, so, yeah, cool. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that, that, that could be pretty compelling evidence, especially for you know, osteotomies around the knee. Um, if, uh, if you could prove the growth factors and um, changes in physiology, uh, would speed up the time to union. That'd be um, pretty valuable information, especially even uh, for ankle fractures and, and high-end athletes. Yeah. Um, anything that you can do to to increase the healing time and maintain muscle mass, get people back to doing what they want to do, uh, would be really valuable. Yeah. Well, in, in pretty much all the pro leagues, I can promise you, most fractures um, they have a, they have a tourniquet on now. Um, what what yeah. about you know upper extremity? And that's kind of what, your specialty as well. So, um, like elbow and wrist makes sense, um, distal yeah. to the cuff. H have you tried it uh, with your proximal stuff, shoulders? Yeah, we ha we haven't done a lot with uh, shoulder stuff yet. I know that there's a study going on looking at I can't remember if it was a rotator cuff repairs or impingement, um, and and using um, I think I think they were using tourniquets on their thighs to see if it uh, created a systemic response. Uh, I think that I think that that could be valuable, um, but you know I haven't had much experience with it to date. Yeah, yeah, that's we get that. I mean, that's kind of the number one question. What about the hip? Because there's so much hip pathology, and, and what about the shoulder? So you know, anecdotally, um, we we see some positive results. If if you put the tourniquet on one arm and and you do bilateral shoulder type exercises, you, it definitely feels like the tourniquet side is working harder proximally. We have a lot of theories and there are some published papers that show proximal changes. Um, but, you know, if you're to say what evidence do you have to show clinically changes in the shoulder, nothing. Um, there, there, there is a rotator cuff trial. It's not going yet. Um, that's with Dan Buss up in Minnesota um, and Tristan, who's out of Ashish Betty's lab in, in Michigan. We're, we're, we're close. <laughs> I think we're almost there. So, um, hopefully we'll, we'll get some shoulder data to, to say, yeah, this is doing something or, or we're not seeing anything. I, I don't know if you remember. Man. I, Go ahead. Yeah, as I said, another thing that may be interesting to look at would be even response with, uh, with something like adhesive capsulitis, because, um, I think there's something really to the redirecting the pain that the patient's perceiving. Um, and, uh, I think, you, you know, but, um, you know, I had my knee scoped a couple of weeks ago and, um, and I guess not only do I prescribe it, but I'm also a client, but, you know, cause I started using BFR two, two days after surgery. And I really think it has a significant effect on um, pain because, um, you know, knee, knee arthroscopy certainly isn't the most painful procedure, but it, um, even having the tourniquet on, um, I felt like it, 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 you know, reduced any symptoms I was having. And just like you said, you start feeling, um, your quad muscle, uh, being tight and sore from, from doing the exercises. And so, uh, I'd be really interested in an adhesive capsulitis population, maybe um, doing some type of BFR in combination with uh, shoulder manipulation, shoulder exercises, and see if there's any benefit to uh, redirecting that pain and, and maybe people progressing quicker uh, using the tourniquet than without. Yeah, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing. And, and we've had one group out of, of Houston who's doing a bunch of research with us who said that, that they've even seen in their in their kind of 
arthrofibrotic knees that are that are lacking extension that, that when after they've done BFR for for several sessions it seems like the the motions coming back where they kind of are plateaued which is which is interesting you know if you're, if there's an analgesic blocking a pain and they're able to push harder or is there something else going on there's a pathway that's being manipulated but the the analgesic effect is is huge um and 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 huge because we weren't really expecting that. You know, I, I think Josh, you and I were first talking and it's like, man, well, we could really flare up some some pain symptoms with these tourniquets on and they're in their their tailored spatial frames and stuff. And then people get down and they're like, man, I feel better after this. And some people it's it's real transient, you know, 10 minutes later, like, ah, it's back. And some people it's like the next day they're they're saying, I, I still feel better. And two two of the NBA teams, um, Going into the playoffs, they were they were using BFR prior to the games with these kind of nagging injuries, um, just to get some analgesia, so the players you know weren't feeling these kind of you know tendinopathy and nagging kind of things during the game. What we don't what we don't know is how much dose you know do we have to do because we don't want to for that scenario we don't want to take the the strength out of the limb. Um, so can we do a small session of it and how long is that effect? So it's an interesting question. And, and we all hate dealing with those frozen shoulders. So anything <laughs> to help with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And any exactly right. Anything that you can solve those difficult clinical problems with, or give you one more tool in your armamentarium for addressing those tough problems, is, is a benefit. I, you know, and some of those patients, just like those kind of chronic quad atrophy patients, are are so uh, are, are so miserable, and they've been kind of caught in the same cycle that you know anything that that they're trying new. Um, uh, they'd be they'd be welcome to try. So yeah. certainly something that would be, that'd be worth looking at. For sure, for sure. But just like you're just like you're talking about the analgesic effect. I'm, I'm only a couple of weeks after surgery myself, uh, but I can tell a difference in my, what my knee feels like the day after if I've done BFR if I have not. So uh, yeah. you know, just like you said, it's probably individual, and there's a whole bunch of factors that go in and affect it. But uh, certainly from my experience, it, it has been something that that's made a difference you know, 24, 48 hours later, if I do it versus if I, you know, skip it for a weekend. Yeah. And, and I think another kind of group to, to look at, if especially if you're a new practitioner of this and, and you kind of want to ease into it with your docs is um, if you get the potential to do it for prehab. Um, so then if, if they're worried about the incision or, or whatever, then say, well, what about, can I see them for a few weeks prehab and, and maybe get that quad stronger? Um, I, I think it's right. Uh, for going after, we actually have a, a big prehab study going with a, a joint uh, group over in, in Dusseldorf, Germany. Um, it's just getting ramped up. Um, so, what are your thoughts on that? Do you ever send people for prehab? Yeah, we we do, and it's usually um, in conjunction with maybe an uh, acute ACL that you want them their their fusion to resolve and um, uh, get their motion back prior to prior to doing surgery, and so. Certainly, those patients we send over uh, for therapy ahead of time. Or if, um, in our population, if uh, you know somebody's getting deployed and they can't have anything done for a certain period of time, yeah. uh, then we'll send them to get some, get some therapy prior to surgery. So, yeah, I I think that that's a, um, uh, certainly something that therapists could use to say, hey, let's do this. And you know, if if a if a surgeon is concerned about it, the the other thing I would tell if um, as a surgeon um, speaking to a therapist, if a therapist is like, you know, having a hard time getting a surgeon to buy off on it, just like you said earlier, I'd, I'd tell them that you'll take their chronic quad weakness where they're not worried about any surgical incision things. Um, and I think that they're going to see um, 
you know, profound differences there. And then, and then slowly back it up. And, that, and that's kind of what we did is, you know, said, well, outside six weeks after arthroscopy, I'm not that worried about it. So we, we can start, you know, doing BFR after six weeks. And uh, once you see that there's no issues with that, um, you know, then you can start kind of getting closer and closer to the surgical date. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you can also look at our literature that's been published that shows that, you know, we, we looked hard for DVTs and looked hard for post-operative complications that were associated with it and, and found none. And so, uh, and the, the other thing is, is to tell the surgeons that the, uh, that we talked about a little bit earlier is that the, the tourniquet uh, pressure is so much lower and it's only on for a short period of time. So uh, um, my, my guess is if, if surgeons are really concerned about uh, tourniquet complications from BFR is that they, they probably don't know the numbers involved as far as the pressures and, and length of time it's being used. Right. Right. And, and we talked earlier in this, in this episode about, um, you know, just even in, in a very surgeon driven journal, journal of arthroscopy, you know, that, that Brian Day and, and Robert LaProd both had in that same journal two two clinical commentaries of, you know, I like BFR and this is how I like to apply it. Um, I, I think even just having those available <laughs> to be like, look, these guys are kind of the leaders in this space. And so if you're comfortable. Yeah. It, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But both both very very well respected surgeons and yeah. well well known in the um, you know the research community and, and publish great great papers and very thoughtful in what they publish and certainly aren't out there to you know to push push anything. And so um, when you when you read their commentary that they're you know saying there's early evidence to support and that they're using their patients, I, you know I, I think that's a pretty strong endorsement. Yeah, yeah, because you guys like to hear each other. I don't know if you remember, man. Um, so Matt Matava was going to, he, he was the, uh, the NFL team physician society president. And he wanted to, uh, to potentially bring me out to discuss this at the combine when we were first doing it. And, and one of the first things he said was, um, well, it sounds great, Johnny, but I would, I would love to actually talk to some of your surgeons to get their perspective first <laughs> before I bring you. So, so me and you and, and Don Gajewski, uh went into Don's office and, and had a talk with Matava and, you know, after he talked to you guys for a little bit, he's like, great, this is awesome. Let's, let's, let's make this happen. Um, and it's same thing. I think last year, one of the big NBA teams, their doc was a little nervous. And, and I think I gave him your number. You talked to him, I, I think, right? Uh, yeah, I've talked, yeah. I've gotten phone calls from, from a few surgeons at this point. You know, um, I, I do remember that first phone call when you were talking about going to the combine and uh, yeah, told him to be, be, be happy to have that conversation. And, um, but yeah, I've, I've I've had a, a few conversations or phone calls from surgeons being like, Hey, what's the deal with this? They're trying to put tourniquets on my patients. You know, yeah. am I going to cause a problem here? And so, uh, I, you know, there's, there's enough literature out there now that shows that it's, um, it's, it's safe. Yeah. And, and I think there's, and I'm, and I think there's literature that shows that it's, that it's effective over, uh, you know, uh, traditional modalities that yeah. we use. And so, yeah, so I think, uh, I think all those, um, questions have been have been answered from my standpoint, and, and now it's just kind of giving people anecdotal stories about you know what's your experience been, do patients like it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, you know, it'd be helpful. I'll, I'll do this. I'll put your cell number in our in our show notes, so everyone can just call you if you're okay with that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that sounds perfect. <laughs> right. Two one zero. Um, okay. okay. All right. So let's roll off of this BFR stuff and just talk quick orthopedic stuff here. So. Um, all right, you're an orthopedic surgeon. What's some stuff that drives you crazy that you see from this side of the house, from the from the rehab folks, 
or nothing at all. You know, There's got to be some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd say we, we have a really good relationship with our therapist. Um, at least I, you know, I did whenever I was practicing in the military. Um, and you know, we were, uh, blessed to have really, really good, thoughtful people. Um, there certainly are a couple of things that stand out in my mind, um, that, you know, whenever I found out about it, uh, my head wanted to explode, but you know, one of the things, uh, is when you feel like you have a complex patient and you try to put in, uh, kind of restrictions that, that you think should be obvious, um, and, and those, and those things are violated. I, um, a couple of years ago, we had a multi-leg knee and, um, the guy came back to, to clinic at six weeks and kind of checking his motion. And I started talking to him about how his therapy was going. He said he thought it was going okay, but his, his knee was kind of swollen and it hurt when he was doing therapy. So I asked him what exercises they were doing. And he said that, um, he was doing a lot of, um, uh, leg extensions and he was doing, um, some side lane with, with ankle weights on. And so I, I so I kind of stopped. So what, what do you mean? And so he kind of showed me that he was laying on the side there for ankle weights on his ankle and he was doing, you know, side leg raises. Um, he had, you know, had a poster lateral corner reconstruction six weeks prior. Oh so, uh, yeah, so my heart started beating a little bit faster and, uh, so I called the therapist and said, you know, what's, what's going on here? You realize we reconstruct this leg on the outside of his knee. And so, putting various forces on his knee, um, you know, you're, you're stressing the repair prior to it healing and, um, you know, may, may cause a problem here. And their response was, well, the therapy protocol says that he can do hip abduction. And so, you know, was, I, you know, I, certainly with, with thoughtful therapists who are experienced, um, I don't have to look so closely at the protocols to make sure that there's no type of exercise that would, you know, cause a problem with the surgical site, but there, there've been a couple of those incidences where, um, exercises for other parts of the body, you know, the kinetic chain, um, probably would be prohibited in the early post-operative course that, um, they're, they're doing stuff that where they're stressing the surgical repair earlier than I want them to be. So, um, those really are the, are the main issues. I, I think, I've had. And, I, and I think one of the things that therapists don't do enough of is understand exactly what the surgical repair is because me and you and Jay or gang and, and Lane Bailey and, and Andrew, you know, so it's me and you from down here. Those guys are up at UPMC. They work closely with Freddie food. Lane is Walt Lowe's right hand man down in Houston. We, we know exactly what the surgical procedure is. And if we don't know, we're either going to learn up on it or go in and watch you do it. Um, yeah. and so it's kind of like common sense, like, man, I saw that, that, that quarter, Oof, it's, that was, that was a tough repair. Yeah. Or even if it wasn't, it's like, I don't want to stress that yeah. right now. And so, uh, a lot of it, I mean, people just stare at the protocol and half the time, right. Unfortunately, yeah. these protocols yeah, suck I, usually, you know, um, you know, right. it's really been embedded. Yeah. And yeah. So that, that's the thing is, as, as I, as I try to, you know, empathize with a position where they're trying to get, you know, patients in and out of clinic and they're busy and. Um, they just, they're handed some protocol and so they just start kind of go, going through what the, what the protocol says and, yeah. you know, maybe they're, they're either not familiar with the procedure or they forgot what procedure was done. Uh, and so, you know, you know, part of it is certainly communicating and making sure everyone knows the appropriate restrictions. But yeah. when you have a therapist that's experienced um, and knows what's going on, then you know, you're a lot more comfortable knowing that there's not going to be any, anything that's going to 
uh, jeopardize the surgical reconstruction. And if, if there's something that, that it's unusual and that they're not familiar with, they're going to call you. And so I, to me, that's, that's the real value is if, if you have a therapist that you can team up with that, you know, they're going to get the right care. Um, and if there's anything that's unusual that you're not on the same page that you're going to get a phone call and say, Hey, what's, you know, what are we doing here? So say I got a junior therapist, one of my interns, I'm out just goofing off. I'm not around. And, and, uh, they're a little nervous about something. Are you comfortable with them paging you, finding your number, texting you, asking you that a question? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I get therapy emails, maybe not weekly, but um, every couple of weeks. And it says, we're seeing so-and-so. I couldn't find their op note. Um, and I tell you, those, those um, emails or messages are are extremely reassuring to me and I'm, and I'm thankful for them. So I uh, never ever uh, would be upset, irritated or anything other than thankful. If somebody calls and says, Hey, I'm just trying to make sure we take the best care of this person possible. You know, any special restrictions, anything like that. So yeah. um, I think a lot of PTs I, just don't I, do that, you know, like, like and I, we all had a great relationship and, you know, I, I had everyone over there in your apartment cell number and, you know, sometimes I would just send something like, hey, man, this dude's rocking it and check this out because um, you guys are proud of that of that repair. And, and it's cool to see it happen. But also be like, Travis, I'm, wor I'm worried, man. Um, I, and I think part of it, too, is I know he's going to come see you at six weeks. We're struggling. I, I don't want him to show up in your office. And it's like, what the heck is wrong? You know, where's your motion? Uh, as soon as I see we're struggling, I'm like, we got an issue, dude. Yeah, we might not make it when he sees you and we're gonna have to really think about uh how we're gonna go after this yeah just like you said that that information is always valuable we cer certainly as surgeons we love to get our ego strokes so if you send us a message and say hey somebody's killing it that you know that we, we love hearing that um but on the other hand if, if somebody's not doing as good as we expect you, we, we want to get those messages too because it's, it's better to have that on your radar so you can kind of plan you know what you or you know how worried you are about them i mean if it's if it's something like that you're like hey he, he's they're gonna do fine there's nothing inside their joint that i'm worried about uh, then you can send a message back say hey just push them a little harder encourage them yeah. something that you, you know you're worried about fixation um you know if somebody's had some adhesive capsulitis or you know on the shoulder anyway if, there, if there's something that you're worried about and you get that message then then you can at least put it on your radar and say hey you know we may need to do something more for this guy and it doesn't just show up in your clinic when you're two hours behind and now you have this, this big problem in your lap that you got to try to triage. So say I'm, I'm post-op day four. I've got a big old, you know, a fused knee, hematoma going on. Everything's shut down. We're working on it. Post-op day seven. Um, they're not going to see you till 10. Still having an issue. This thing's real swollen. Would you want a call like, Hey, can we, can we see about doing something on this knee effusion or, or ride it out till they see me in the next four to five days type of thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's hard to say a blanket answer to that I, I yeah. tend not to ask aspirate effusions. Um, mm -hmm. I, I tend to try to get them to resolve on their own. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's, if it's, you know, two or three weeks going and it's really shutting down their quad and they're having a hard time um, getting their quads to activate with it, um, that, that I, I consider it somewhere, somewhere in that range. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that, um, just from going through the experience myself over uh, a couple few weeks ago, uh, that was the only thing that bothered me after surgery was the effusion. The, the yeah. um, surgical sites ne never hurt really. 
I don't even know if I noticed them, uh, but just having a big effusion uh, for a few days and not, you know, bend your knee and have a hard time getting your quad to activate. I think that was a big thing that, that the tourniquets helped is, um, is once you could get your quads to activate and just do a straight leg raise, um, once you got over that and you could put, put tourniquets on and do straight leg raises with that, start getting a little bit of your quad firing. I, I feel like that really helped the effusion yeah. um, start getting better. So Yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's kind of just like chasing your tail. The effusion keeps the quad from firing. Quad doesn't fire. It doesn't seem like it gets the effusion to kind of pump out. But I, I think that's the beautiful thing, again, with BFR in those cases, because you're probably getting down to the big motor units, um, even with something like quad sets or straight leg raises. And, and next thing you know, you're, you're getting a good good kind of push of that effusion. So it, it helps with that chasing your tail. So, okay, last, last kind of like what I call Travis scenario. I've got an incision that's not looking 100% great. Um, no, no fever, no signs, hard signs of any infection, just kind of like, oh man, this incision isn't closing. Like, I think they're not going to see you for another four weeks, call you up then or, or just kind of keep monitoring. Yeah. No, send, send me, send me a message. I'd, I'd want to know about it. If, um, you know, again, I'll, I'll have the benefit of knowing, do we put allograft in there? Mm-hmm. Is there something else I'm concerned about infection wise? Um, and so, you know, if somebody wants to take a picture and text it to me, if somebody just wants to give me a call, typically if somebody gives me a call and says, Hey, I'm worried about a wound, I say, just send them over to the clinic and we look at it. So, yeah. um, if I certainly with our relationship and your extensive experience taking care of these post-op patients, if there's somebody that, that you're concerned about, then, then I want to be concerned about it also and see if there's something that we need to do. Cool. So is your practice going to change uh, when you go civilian side? You're going to be doing a lot more BTPs now. <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's funny. It'll it'll, it'll be an in- interesting transition. We always think the grass is greener on the other side, but oh man, my guess I know my my guess is I'm I'm going to look back on on my military patients, my military practice, and and miss it. I mean it's you know just just as you remember the best patients in the world, and you know yeah. and, and you get sent real problems and um, and people that want to get better, and so it was yeah. You know, great, great practice. There's certainly frustrations in the administrative and um, bureaucracy side of things. But as far as the patients and the, and the practice goes, I, my, my guess is that it may have been the best ever. You know, I, I know you talk to all of our friends that are out and um, I, I hear that so much. I, I was just with Joe Shu and, you know, no one hated the end of his career as much as Joe <laughs> Shu <laughs> of wanting to get yeah. out. But we were together at the Special Forces Conference and uh I mean, he was like, man, I, I miss it. And looking back, that was that was like the most amazing time of, of my career. So definitely it was it was it was definitely worth it. So, yeah, well, cool, man. We'll, we'll wrap it up there. Um, thanks, Dr. Burns. The civilian world's getting a, an amazing surgeon down here. And, and so if anyone in the San Antonio area definitely is, is looking for a fantastic surgeon, especially a sports medicine doc or anywhere in the country, we know we know people fly all over. Um, so you're going to be at Ortho San Antonio with, with, with Matt Murray and Matt Moray, right? Yeah, it's, it's going to be me, Matt Murray, uh, Matt Morey and, uh, uh, Jesse DeLee and, uh, and John Henchy. And so I think we'll have a good group of guys. That's and, a, that's uh, a, that's really, a, that's a badass group, man. <laughs> yeah, it should, well should, should be fun. And, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be fun to turn in, turn a new page and get into a new chapter of things. All right, Travis, let's go grab a beer here soon, man. All right, brother. Appreciate you. You have a good one. Okay, later. All right. Bye-bye.
now let's let's take some questions. We we got a bunch of good questions from our last podcast. Um, and you know what, I guys, I need to clarify something um, because we we try to you know be uh, evidence based, science based podcast. Um, our, our first podcast, which wasn't a true podcast, it was a practice podcast to just see if we could get this thing up on iTunes. We had a deep discussion about Tori um, and her her school not having a mascot, you know, and that really you know rubbed me wrong. And, and so we went deep into. You know, we got to find a way to get you guys a mascot. So if you listen to the last podcast, it was a bunch of yapping from us um, of, of looking for for um, a mascot. But but then, guys, guess what happens? Tori goes home to her husband and she's like, oh, my God, guess what Johnny made me do today? The stupid podcast. And all he talked about was us not having a mascot. And, and her husband's like, Tori, you guys had a mascot the whole time. You know <laughs> <laughs> All I did was Google her college, and on the front page, the it's, it's Wildcat Willie it, for everyone that's, that's wondering. <laughs> but I'm still oh, gonna talk to him about being vape. You like vape better? Yeah, Wildcat Willie. I mean, it's kind of cute, but yeah. it just makes no sense. Um, and the other thing we have to clear up, we were all excited because um, that first practice podcast, we got three subscribers and we didn't even really leave it on for more than a day. And we we're like, we're going to rock this world. Well, and then I found out that I think all three subscribers are on this call right now. So we, we, <laughs> <laughs> we weren't really, we weren't really as cool as we thought. All right. So here's a question. So Tim put in, is it beneficial to do BFR for, multiple sclerosis patients is it contraindicated is there any research are there special considerations i.e overheating or fatigue so zach i know that you've had conversations with one of our research partners on this why don't you chime in first yeah yeah so we have a we have some data there was a preconditioning study that was done and um they they showed a um Following the uh, the preconditioning, the walking, they showed about so, a 10 meter increase in walking. Symptoms. Zach, Zach, hold on. So because we've been saying BFR, BFR, we're going to mix this this term in preconditioning. What what does preconditioning mean? So so preconditioning, or or I, I refer to it as ischemic conditioning, and basically what it is is we run the the pressure up the uh, the limb occlusion pressure, and from there we introduce full ischemia for five minutes. And then we reperfuse for five minutes and we cycle that three times. Um, and you can either do that pre-exercise or pre-training bout, or you can do it post. So if, if we do it pre, we just call it ischemic pre-conditioning. If we do it post, it's ischemic post-conditioning. Right. And so what we don't know uh, is how many bouts are needed, how long of time really, yeah. how long of rest. So, but, but we're stealing this from remote ischemic pre-conditioning, which there's a ton of of papers on that to, to spare heart muscle, to spare the kidneys, to spare the liver. And, and those guys have done a lot of, of work already over decades. And so um, I, I think our general understanding is it seems like a work to rest ratio. It needs to be one to one or not work, but inflation deflation yep. is one to one. Um, and, and then yep. it looks like it needs to be at full occlusion. So BFR, we, we typically or we don't. Yep go to full occlusion, but ischemic preconditioning, it's like, yeah, I think it needs to be at full occlusion. So we use 100% of limb occlusion pressure, right? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think the the reason it needs why we say it needs to be at full occlusion is because when you look at the the studies that have been done, it, it's with a clamp, and so they completely clamp the artery, so it's going to be full um, full ischemia. Okay. And so from there, so so we have that aspect of not doing exercise with the cuff on, but simply doing um, the, this conditioning prior to the training bout. And then what we see is we see an increase in walking distance in the group that had the the uh, the ischemic conditioning. But that was um, that was MS subjects. Clinical, that that was with MS subjects. Yep. Okay. Um, and so then we have a clinical trial that's going on um, currently. It just started in June, and it's enrolling folks right now with um, severe MS. And um, they're going to do two groups. One's going to be a BFR group. And it's, it's a walking-based study. Uh, and then the other group is going to be a control group that does not have any, uh, any cuff on. Uh, it'll be it's an interval-based walking study for six weeks, uh, training twice a week. Um, what they'll do is they're going to do a one-to-one ratio of walk to rest. Uh, and it'll be for a total of, say, six minutes. So during each bout, it's going to be one minute of walking with the cuff on with one minute rest, and then that'll be continued out for um, six minutes. They're gonna do that for five total bouts. So we're gonna get roughly right around 15 minutes of ischemia. The kind of caveat to this that differs from a lot of the, the aerobic stuff that we've seen so far is they're gonna deflate the cuff um, in between each, each set. So that's gonna, I think, pose a little bit of a limitation, but either way, the point of their study is they just want to assess the safety and feasibility um, of VFR. Yeah, um, that, so that's, that's, that's a- uh, uh, and That's the one going on in Italy, right? That, that is correct, in, yep. In, in Italy. Yeah, so that was interesting that they say so, severe MS, and, and so they have these, um, yeah. you know, kind of inclusion criteria that you have to have worsening MS symptoms, I think, for like over three months or something like that to even enroll, which yep. that, yeah, I correct. Mean, that alone is going to make, oh, man, if I'm if I'm looking at that study, it's like, I bet enrollment's going to be hard. Um, it, it's it's going to be, it's going to be tough, yeah. They have, uh, I, um, I think I saw they... They have it, you know, they got a three-year window for completion. We'll, we'll see how many they get. Do you remember what the N was on it? Um, I, do, I don't see it. So let me look. Well, anyways, I, so I, I, I know yeah, that. I don't know. I, I, I don't know those guys. Um, we, we don't have any relationship with them. There, I think there is a, a, a fatal flaw in that one is, is the way they're, they're determining pressures on it. So it's, I, they're using uh, systolic blood pressure, and then they are correct. Using it's that. forty. It's, it's so yeah, and it's low. It's 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 forty percent occlusion. But they're and they're forty percent systolic blood they're, pressure. They're probably getting blood pressure in the upper extremity, right? I mean, I didn't see they clarified that. That's what it, most people do. They did not. Yeah. So yeah. that's the problem. Uh, right? And it's it, it's. They're looking for 40 participants in this study. 40, yeah. But, okay, so a lot of people, here's, here's the problem yeah. with these studies. They will, like, take a blood pressure in the upper extremity, take that, and say, okay, systolic is 130. And then they go down to the lower extremity, and they'll use that pressure at 40%. That blood pressure yeah. in the lower, for one, that's, that's the problem all the way around. Blood pressure is just one of many variables. So, I mean, if you're going to do a study like this, and, and really help us like understand how to standardize this and what the effect is. You, you 
you, you can't just go off of blood pressure. So they're, they're probably gonna get a very low occlusive stimulus, um, which, mm-hmm. you know. And so, then we're gonna, then we're gonna deflate the cuff yeah. in between sets. So we, we just gotta be careful because here's a couple things. I could say, look, yeah, we did a severe MS and there was no problem. Well, you, you use this kind of poor design where we're using blood pressure, probably in the upper extremity, and then you took it down to the lower extremity, which is already screwed up 100% of, of, of what we know for limb occlusion pressure. And then you even took that down further. So the occlusive effect is probably minimal. So people in the clinical setting that are using Dopplers, we can't even use that anymore. We don't, we don't know, you know what to use. So safety, we still don't know from the way that it's clinically really being applied in most of the stuff. And then the other thing, if they don't get a good result, well, it's like you might have had such low occlusive pressure. You know, how how would you expect to have got a result when you're using something like blood pressure in the upper extremity going to the lower extremity? Um, the variables for limb occlusion pressure are, you know, the size of the limb is, is looks like it's one of the number one determinants that we that we have to use. The density of the limb, um, the width of the cuff, the the placement of the cuff, is the cuff tapered? What's their blood pressure? Um, so all of those have to be accounted for and it won't be accounted for in this study but but good on them i mean they're at least getting the ball rolling in a, in a population um it's a, yeah they get a lot of questions and then i was gonna say the other study that um is currently um trying to they're going to ramp up here is up in baltimore um and uh what they're looking at is basically it's is the opposite so they're looking at high functioning ms folks and from there um, it's going to be a strength-based program where they're going to do three exercises uh, with BFR. They, they'll use the Delphi device. Um, it's going to be seated knee extensions, a squat, and then a straight leg raise. Um, and so they're looking, again, from a safety standpoint, a feasibility standpoint, and then an efficacy standpoint. Um, looking at outcome measures, they are going to look at fatigue, I think, acutely, and then at 24 hours. Um, and then they're going to look basically – um at, at strength in the lower extremity and then six minute walk test as well and then they have not decided but they're going to they're going to use a, a an ms specific outcome measure as well okay and so i, I um, we, we know the group you're talking about is this ms kids that they're doing it on that has not been um i do not know okay and have they started pilot is it already going it, that, that is a pilot study they have funding for. Okay, awesome. Well, and that's a good group. So I, I, know, I, I think we'll get some good information from that. Um, so really, Tim's question, yeah. are there then, any research? There's one published trial, and we have two trials that we know of ongoing, one with a group we work with, one we don't, right? Yeah, correct. And, and I think one of the, the, the big mechanisms potentially is like when you want to implement that one is like he, he, he suggests is, you know, monitoring fatigue and I would monitor fatigue acutely after and then at 24 hours. Yeah. Um, and then so you can use something as simple as like the fatigue severity scale, something along those lines. Um, mechanisms that may potentially help is, um, you know, IGF, uh, which then will have an impact. Um, uh, century and peripherally in oligodendrocytes and swan cells, uh, potentially uh, we'll, we'll see a change with VEGF as well, which will have um, uh, central uh, nervous system and peripheral nervous system um, myelin effect as well. And then potentially a, a growth hormone um, role as well with um, myelin. So 
Yeah. That, that would be the potential mechanism that, that we would look. And then Tim, with, with that being said, the data that we have when we look specifically at either VEGF or growth hormones, that, that, those studies were done with one exercise and it was knee extension. Um, the other thing was the, um, the IGF study that we pulled from, that was a squat and leg curl study. So with that being said, you don't have to do a ton of exercise to spike these factors. Um, one exercise to two exercises seems to get us a pretty good response. Um, so it may be worthwhile just to do one or two exercises within this patient population, at least early on to see how they respond. I, I would say that's key because we, we did have one um, individual. She was actually in San Antonio. I, I wasn't working with her. It was with a, a group here. But um, she kind of had uh, a little bit of exacerbation of her fatigue symptoms for days after her first session. And, and they just did too many. I think yeah. they did like three or four exercises. Like, man, you guys, come on. One at least the first day. Yeah. Um, she loved it though. She came back. She took like yeah. ten days off, and and she she has done well. Um, so and yeah, and I, I think you know maybe we we can get deeper into this MS wormhole um, with things like VEGF and its neuroprotective factor. You know th these people already have compromised myelin sheaths, so that's where we got to be real careful when we're we're looking at pressure gradients being created um, with your systems. You know, one thing we really with these Delphi's is, is we keep these pressure gradients at a, at a low level, um, which we're, we're not maybe compromising demyelinating nerve. The, the, the one other thing I think with MS we got to think about though, is, is they do kind of have some compromised um, vascular systems in these vascular beds. They get these MS plaques. Um, so I, I wouldn't, if I had an MS patient, I wouldn't just go right at it. I, I would talk with the doc and, and make sure that they're comfortable with it. M MS isn't, a contraindication on on our devices, um, which means that you know basically they could have the uh, tourniquet placed for surgery, um, and, and it's not contraindicated. So it's it's not a direct contraindication, but because of these unknowns, I, I would definitely get the medical team on board. Cool. All right, Tim. Hope to help. And and, yep. and everyone who answered their question, I think we are, we we picked five. You get a free T-shirt. So Tori's going to reach out to you and, and get your get your shirt size. These are the nice shirts too. Um, Kyle, I think he just cut out right when his uh, I think his buddy's question came on. So this is from Corey. <laughs> At what point would you transition a patient off BFR to normal loading, or is it better to continue with BFR as they get into more normal lifting? Kyle, did you hear that? Are you back on? Yeah, I think I'm back on. I, I don't know what's going on with my internet. This is from, um, from Corey. When would you take Corey. them off BFR and get to normal loading? Or would you do BFR with a more normal lifting? Yeah, so I, it varies probably every patient I treat. I would I, I would say I, I, I'm, I'm always kind of looking at when can I get away from BFR and move towards heavy lifting. Because you, you have to get there. Yes. Um, just to build load tolerance and tendon resilience and, and all those things that are important for our people to get back to doing what they want to do. I think that, you know, there doesn't have to be a hard endpoint though. I think too often we're kind of looking for, all right, now we can run or now we can do plows or now we can lift heavy. And, and for me, quite often it's some sort of a hybrid. It's like, all right, you know, let's try to do this squat type movement heavier and get more towards those ACSM guidelines, but maybe we're still kind of doing our long arc quad type movement with, with BFR. Um, 
And then as, as I transition farther, I'm still kind of looking at their muscle quantity. If they have a, a deficit in muscle size, I'm going to keep doing BFR because I just want to make sure I've given them enough stimulus to restore that muscle size because we need to get that back for them in order for them to develop force at some at some point. Um, and then moving kind of farther down, like for example, I, 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 as I said, I've done a variety of things, but uh, one of the things I've kind of been tinkering with recently is kind of having like a heavy day where we really load that person heavy the first day. And then if they're three days a week, then the second day is just a BFR day. Right. Um, and that and also, that, like, tests, that tests your joint, you know, and if they flared up right. and heavy, it's like, okay, maybe we're not ready for this yet. It, it, that's exactly right. And so you're building a load tolerance that, that whole time. So I think there, there's just kind of this blending of when you're doing what you're doing and you're kind of feeling it out as you go. And it varies every, just about every time that you do it probably, which is not what we often want to hear. We, it's nice to just have an answer. Like this is what you do, but <laughs> yeah, unfortunately it's just not how it works in the clinic. Well, and I think you made a good point. Like, okay, maybe I'm doing some multi-joint moving away from BFR, but I've still got a deficit in, in maybe strength, right. muscle quantity or quality. You know, and George right. Davies and I spoke um, at Symposium America several years ago, and he drove this point home. He's like, man, we, we're so damn functional that we quickly move into doing all these fun, crazy exercises when this ACL is still significantly weak and still significantly, you know, atrophied at the quad. And it's like, get that back first. You know, right. you're sitting there trying to clean up a damn squat. And it's like, man, I bet if this guy didn't have a 30%, you know, deficit in strength in his quad, that squat would clean up pretty quick. Um, exactly. So it, it's an easy way to do a low load and keep hammering that away while you're maybe moving into some functional things. Um, yeah. And I, I know all of us agree. If you can lift heavy, lift heavy, right? Yes. It, it's, yeah. You know, everyone's like, you guys just do BFR. No, man. I, I hate those damn tourniquets. Um, if your patient can lift heavy, get them off the tourniquet and, and get them lifting heavy. That's the goal. Because you want them to leave and say, okay, keep going to the gym um, and, and start putting some loads on there if you can tolerate it. But if you can't, then BFR is a nice alternative. You know, that's that's kind of our saying that we had at the Center for the Intrepid. It's, why are you doing that exercise? Well, I'm doing that exercise for strength and hypertrophy. Okay, do they meet the loading guidelines that we know from ACSM? No, they can't because they have pain, they have surgery, whatever. Okay, then if it's a, you have to use a lower load, then put the tourniquet on. That's that's about as black as wide as I can get with it. Um, and then slowly transition off. Well, what we don't know, and this is a question we get, what about lifting heavy with the tourniquet? Do you get something extra from that, right? So we, we don't know. We, you know, you might maybe off an animal model, you might have less muscle damage. So you can maybe lift more. You have more protein synthesis and less protein breakdown. Um, University of Michigan's ACL study is looking at higher loads with tourniquets. Um, so we'll see. Hopefully it'll be done here soon. So, all right. So I, I think, I don't think we had a great answer for you, Corey, but it's, it's a gray area. That's for sure. Hey, look, Johnny, I, the only thing about Corey, man, like I know he really wants that t-shirt, I'm sure, but you need to understand how I met Corey. Did I ever tell you that story? No. <laughs> so he 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 was a student at Hardin Simmons University, where I'm an alumni from. I went there to talk about. I wasn't talking BFR at the time, but I rolled up in the parking lot, and there's this truck, and it said the bumper sticker says, "Keep college station normal." 
And I went, oh, here we go. And so I made a reference to that bumper sticker in my talk. And sure enough, it was it was Corey's. So at which point I went into something about, look, at you know, what would Texas A&M be without the University of Texas? They would just cease to exist. I mean, we're in their fight song. It's exactly. they, they really wouldn't have a purpose. So. Yeah, well, so before you send that shirt, maybe maybe put like a sticky note for front and back for Corey, so he just knows how to how to put it on. Yeah, well, I'm just gonna we'll send him a, a keep Austin weird T-shirt. Um, there you yeah. go. Well, and I thought Kyle was gonna go into an explanation of how he met Corey in a bar, because that's where I assume Kyle <laughs> met everyone. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, Kyle, I gotta go. All right, Kyle, that was a good love story to end it on with you and Corey. Yeah, all, right. Right. all right, we'll talk to y'all later. All right, so this all is right. from Jordan. Is there any research or data out there pertaining to using VFR for joint effusion? If so, what is the mechanism? So you guys thought, so I assume he's saying, let's look at this from two ways. Does it decrease joint effusion or does it increase joint effusion? Because we've had people say, well, yeah, this guy, you know, had a, a sprained ankle. We did VFR and it seemed like his effusion went down. But the big question you get is, does this make joint effusion worse, especially in your post-operative patients? So you guys go with that first. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. just from from my limited experience and, and everything that I'm hearing, um, I have I've heard a few times of some people that got a little bit of additional joint effusion, but that seems to be very. Um, I've heard anecdotally from some people that they have less joint effusion. Maybe there's a little bit more of a muscle pump kicking in, a little bit more venous return. Um, I don't know that it would you know have any effect on the lymphatic system, but maybe. Um, so. You know, I've, I've heard a little bit of both, more so on, you know, less joint effusion than adding joint effusion, and I have not seen any research out there on it, so. Yeah. What about you, Zach? Yeah, same same with Ben. Um, kind of, I don't know of any research specifically looking at it. Um, how I look at it and consider it in a post-op population would be, you know, swelling in and of itself is going to be normal. And we know like the ACL, they, they swell for a long time. So just the simple fact that it swells isn't necessarily a big deal. But if we notice that the cuff is causing it to swell or this joint effusion is significantly worse and it's for a chron like a long-term period, at that point in time, I would, I'll stop using the cuff and then um, kind of wait until swelling and the effusion's under control yeah. at that point in time and reintroduce it. But um, yeah. So what we know from the tourniquet literature is not a lot. Um, you know, it, the, the engineers up there at Delphi and their scientists said, well, from what we know, tourniquets don't increase intraarticular swelling. But, but there's really nothing published on that. And, and you know, you're not going to know because they're using tourniquets in the surgical suites um, with an open joint. Um, so, you know, obviously we're not able to tell is it making the swelling worse or anything. Um, while it's on, but but anecdotally too, I agree with you guys. We haven't seen that it makes the the effusion worse. In our in our knee scope trial, we we just tape measured um, the the joint lines of of the BFR group and the control group, and there and there was no difference over time um, in, in what we saw there. But I do agree with you, Zach. If the swelling gets worse, or if the swelling's bad, calm that down first. It, you know, it's amazing how much yeah. better your rehab goes if once you get the swelling to calm down and, and the pain and the swollen joints a very painful joint too. Um, the, the one thing that, that we have is a, is a contraindication or a risk um, is these extra articular incisions. So like a, a Tommy John, a UCL reconstruction an MCL where they've, they've taken down the, the medial joint line um, outside the joint, 
it seems like you can get some swelling. So with those, I, I would definitely monitor the wound to make sure you, you don't get dehiscence. But if, if I have a, like a routine knee ACL, um, that's kind of redundant, knee and ACL, or a routine ACL, um, and it's just scoped out, I'm, I'm not worried about BFR increasing swelling from, from what we've seen with all these cases. Um, Mechanism-wise, like, like yeah. Ben said, I don't think we have a mechanism. Dr. Cox, when I was down there teaching at Andrews, you know, he was really interested in, in this fifth space, um, this lymphatic space. Is there a clearing of it, um, which, which is an interesting theory, but we don't know. Go ahead, Zach. Yeah. Cool. All right. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. All right. <laughs> this is from Amanda. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Can BFR be used during rotator cuff rehab if the Delphi, Delphi tourniquet is placed proximal on the limb to restrict blood flow? How would this aid in rotator cuff rehab and those muscles still receiving O2? Well, for one, boy, talk about the number one question we get at every course, right? <laughs> I mean, you almost, barely, <laughs> you almost barely start teaching it and people say, okay, what, what about proximal to the cuff? So we're... You know, in this podcast, <laughs> we're not going to go into proximal yet, but we, we definitely will because that's a big question. Um, so so I'll, I'll take this first. Can it be used during rotator, rotator cuff rehab? Well, well, certainly, yes. Um, what evidence do we have to show that it helps? We have a big goose egg of, of nothing. Anecdotally, um, it, it definitely um, seems like it, it has some benefit. If you do, you know, like, bilateral scaption exercises, one with a cuff on, on one arm, the other arm not. It definitely feels like the arm with the cuff, especially at the shoulder, is working a lot harder. Um, and and there's, there's different kind of ideas on this. It's, it's either downstream fatigue where if I put a cuff on my, on my thigh muscle and I do squats, um, the quad gets so tired that my hip becomes a prime mover. Uh, we have some studies that back that up. These bench press studies where there's, there's higher EMG at the pec. Uh, and changes at the pec um, when they have the cuff on because the speculation is you fatigue the tricep so much to, that these trunk muscles have to become more of a prime mover. So that, so that's one theory. The other theory is this, this systemic response that gets some people really worked up um, when, when you talk about it. But it's, you know, can you put the cuff somewhere else and get a response at a distal muscle or, or a, a muscles that's not directly related to the cuff? Um, so we'll get into that deeper. We are planning a big rotator cuff repair study with Dan Buss up there at, at Alina Healthcare, along with uh, Tristan, who's at Ashish Betty's lab um, in Michigan, to hopefully answer this question a little bit better. Uh, but but we use it in, in, in all of our proximal uh, shoulder rehab. Um, seems to be beneficial. Anything you guys want to add to that? I think you got it from my side. Yeah, I mean, I... Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the big thing with the systemic changes is the muscle group that you're working or the, the muscle group you target has to be active. Yeah. You know, just because we put a cuff, we, just because we put the cuff on doesn't automatically make that muscle group either hypertrophy or change its strength. Right, right. So that's the problem that first six weeks in rotator cuff rehab when you, you really aren't doing much of anything, you know, um, range yeah. really. So, so what can you do during that first six weeks? Well, what we're going to look at is, you know, having it on the lower extremity um, to kind of look at this whole systemic um, suggestion and then at least doing your, your isometrics in your upper extremity range and, and, and hopefully getting a, a T3 MR to just see, is there changes at the actual tendon itself? 
did we reduce fatty infiltrate? Um, and, and then from six to 12 was when we can start throwing it on the, on the arm and see if there are additional changes there. So, um, that's the way we skin the cat clinically with our, with our rehab, with these protocols, but hopefully the study gives us some better insight. Okay. Last question here, Ethan, is there any potential in using functional dry needling and PBFR in combination to speed up recovery from an acute muscle strain? Physiology and mechanisms of both modalities seem to tie in well together. I'm going to have to pass on this one because I don't really understand the physiology. I haven't looked at it of dry needling. Um, Zach, I think you're the only one here that might understand that one a little bit better. Yeah, so just trying to just to keep it simple, um, using using the needling following a strain of any sort, where I've, I've find that we get the, the, the greatest effect from that is we can reduce that muscle spasm um, from the, the actual strain of the muscle. And in my experience, it's the spasm of maybe the muscles trying to approximate the two ends of the tear, bring them together to help the healing. But once we basically reduce that spasm, we can have a significant impact on mobility of the tissue and then the ability to basically either exercise or simply just walk with minimal to no pain. So from that standpoint, that's how I use that. And I use it relatively early in a, in a treatment session. So regardless if we're talking a muscle strain or just a, if, if I need to impact someone's movement patterns or something like that, we'll go ahead, do that treatment initially. And then we put the cuff on and do targeted exercises to, to the tissue that I want to treat. Um, so if it's a hamstring strain, maybe we just start with something that they can tolerate. Could be something like a bridge. Um, it's something that we get a little bit of hamstring activation out of, but we're not, it's not a full-on um, targeted treatment, say like a leg curl. And then from there, I just progress the treatment to what they can tolerate with a more direct exercise to that muscle. Okay. Makes sense. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I will say soft tissue wise, these soft tissue injuries, we've seen some, some positive some positive changes, um, and, and it seems like it might be something to go after. Paul Silvestri and I uh, put a little, you know, case series paper out. It wasn't a real published. It was in, it was in training conditioning on at Florida um, for some of these hamstring injuries they were getting and using BFR. And, you know, on the imaging, it looked like they were getting a better regenerative response, less fibrosis compared to the historical data. Um, the guys out there with the Rams have, have also seen some positive changes um with bfr for these hamstring injuries and, and so I, I think the number one thing that we want to look at from a from a soft tissue standpoint is how can we reduce fibrosis and how can we get muscle regeneration yep. and so you have to up regulate yeah. the progenitor cells the growth factors um that's that's probably the satellite cells that that are are going to be a new myocyte um but also you know maybe getting these hematopoietic progenitor stem cells to come out of the bone, but the fibrosis is the key. We got to, we got to take that down. And so yep. we're getting deeper of, of the pathway that we want to tackle with this BFR. But, but I, I can see, man, whatever you can do to get the muscle to calm down from a spasm. I mean, I, I you know, I'm not yeah. going to get into the dry needling debate, that, that, um, but <laughs> if, it, if it takes the spasm down yeah. and tolerate it, then man, go for it. Uh, yeah. I would say. Yeah. That, that's the thing I think. And then the, um, like you said, I mean, with the cuff, the true benefit with the cuff is we can do a low, a low load exercise that otherwise could produce that progenitor cell response. 
we would have to use a much higher uh, load. We can do it with a much lower load. It's a lot more tolerable to the healing tissue and just kind of really jumpstart the progression. Exactly. Exactly. All right, man. Well, guys, we went way too long again. I'm going to go wake Tori up. Um, <laughs> and, and I think we will uh, close this off until next time. Appreciate you being on. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day, fellas. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.